I am Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Scott H. Scott is a 30-year-old follower of Christ, family medicine resident, and a realist. In the two years since our first conversation, he's experienced a truly wild ride to earn the title of physician. During this interview, we discuss the lows associated with failing two board exams, how identifying with his faith kept him above water, and why he never considered himself a suicide risk when he wasn't sure he would graduate medical school. Before we more, talk more about Scott H. and this great converse, follow-up conversation, I want to talk about my long-form Sundays posts. These are my weekly reflections on medical education from the very first la- uh, anatomy lab of medical school to now uh, finishing up my second month of residency as a psychiatry intern. And so uh, you can find those posts uh, on all online for free at eugenehkim. That is www.eugeneh.kim. Or you can go to Amazon and uh, search for Physician Education and look for my book, uh, my collected works of this uh, under the title of On the Education of a Physician. And there you can find uh, Kindle versions as well as the paperback versions, depending on what suits your fancy. And so uh, most uh, on August 4th, 2019, I published On the Shadow of Nights or Week 1 of 3. This week I reflected on the shadow of night shift. I am on days, but when Mackenzie is on nights, it affects the whole family. I go through the week day by day because I don't have the energy to organize my thoughts in any other way. I didn't realize that rhymed until I just said it out loud. And anyway, and then uh, more recently on August 11th, 2019, I published On Short Reflections or Week 2 of 3. This week, I quickly reflect on Mackenzie's second week of nights. Family visited yesterday and baby is teething. Life isn't slowing down during residency, and I don't expect it will anytime soon. So again, just check those out at the website, at my website, eugenehkim, or just look it up on Amazon under Physician Education. It's a fun time. Now back to the interview. Scott is not a medical student anymore, a follower of Christ, and a realist. Before Scott dies, he wants to be used wherever God puts him. When Scott dies, he wants to stay out of the hospital. After Scott dies, he wants the things he did in this life to have an impact on somebody. And in conclusion, Scott says, Love God and love others, the two greatest commandments that are in the Bible. If you forget about either of those things, then we're lost. What a, what's, what words to end on, Scott? It was great. So uh, as I mentioned on, at, in the very beginning... This is a follow-up conversation with Scott. I initially interviewed Scott um, about two years ago in 2017 when we were sort of starting our third year of medical school, uh, which is when we hit the hospital wards and uh, start rotating around. We've just finished all the bookwork stuff, and it was at this time that Scott was, uh, I think he was still in the process of studying for step one, uh, because he had to delay it because he wasn't feeling great. And we go into this whole saga during, uh, during this interview. It's basically like the first hour and a half of the conversation. It's just him relaying this wacky story about how, um, because of the scholarship he's in and because of the, the ways in which he performed on these exams, uh, really put him in a bind. And it was a very, very narrow tunnel that he had to go through, a very narrow path to, to get to, re- to graduation and to residency. Um, and I mean, spoiler alert, he gets there, but it's, I think the, the wild ride is, is very intense and interesting. And especially when you compare 
this conversation to the first conversation that we had uh, back in 2017. Um, I think it's a very different conversation, and I think in a great way because uh, that very first conversation was so academic. Um, and I'm going to put that first interview at the end of this interview. So if you jump ahead like uh, an hour and a half, two hours, I think you'll you'll land right in the middle of it or right at the beginning of it. Anyway, um, yeah, so I think that that first interview was just so academic and he was, you know, it was almost like, uh, yeah, like, a, like somebody, uh, writing about their faith who has such a well-researched scholarly approach to their faith. Um, but it, ha- it lacked like an, a lived experience. And that was what I thought that this conversation would be. And it was, um, so, you know, Scott, you talking about this, these trials that he went through, um, and how his, his faith the applied the application of his faith um keeping him sane grounded and alive during this whole process and um you know when we were talking um it was startling to me because i didn't you know i had checked on him regularly during this just because like, oh scott's going through some crazy stuff let me just see how he's doing because i know you know he's, these board exams are really not doing him any favors but I never actually considered him a suicide risk um, during this. And part of that probably was just my own blind spot, not thinking about my peers as suicide risks. Um, but, you know, with the recent interview with Pamela Weibel, um, I think it was released uh, like August uh, 3rd or something like that, um, about the you know the epidemic of physicians killing themselves. Uh, in retrospect, it's like, oh, yeah, Scott was definitely a suicide risk. Um, but he also goes into why he felt like he would never really even consider that as an option for him um, versus other other students that, you know, there's uh, there's another interview. Let me look it up really quick while I talk. Um, it was Cami I. Uh, she was a, when I first interviewed her um, back, I think, in like 2017 um, about, you know, when she was finishing up medical school, getting ready for residency, she had already matched. And then I interviewed her less than a year later. Um, and I'll put this all in the show notes. So don't, don't worry. You don't need to look these dates up, but it was a, uh, you know, in between the time she attempted suicide and had a pretty, pretty good crack at it. She had to stay in the hospital for a while uh, for medical reasons. Um, and we talked and you know, the, the difference between the two interviews for her cami, uh, is really startling. Um, just because, uh, you know, the first one, she's so happy. And then the second one is just so much heavier and deeper and, and sadder. Um, but it, it's important. And, uh, you know, I think that's just, you know, I'm circling around this issue of like, why are, why are so many people in medicine, you know, the healers of our culture, why are we driven to, you know, almost you know, why are we driven to thinking about hurting ourselves, uh, to, to deal with what's going on? And, uh, Scott, I think is an interesting example of why somebody might be totally resilient and, you know, it's just not even entering their, the brain space in terms of his faith. Um, and not to say that that faith isn't for everybody, but I think it's just, he's an interesting case study about why, when things were going really poorly, why did he never think about it? Um, just because it's, you know, you, I think the N of one, the um, the anecdotal evidence, this one person's stories is worthwhile because these are conversations that are not happening in the open. And, um, you know, Scott, I think, had a lot of reasons to be very low, and you'll hear them. And this is a really great conversation. So, um, you know, with all that context, I hope that you are ready for this wonderful conversation with Scott H. on death once again. quick fake out. I just want to let you know that audience, I'm going to, I've been 
you know, debating this decision for a little while, and I think that what I'm going to do is instead of going on hiatus for the podcast entirely, I'll kind of pare down my release schedule just to make things a little bit more easier, more manageable for me as a you know a new resident, new dad, and uh, human on this earth, um, and trying to release this podcast. <laughs> so instead of so what I'll do is I'll release this new episode, and then I'm going to do a repost in two weeks, and then in one month I'll do uh, another new episode, and then I'll do a re-release, new episode, re-release, new episode, and then once we hit uh, the end of the year, um, I'll do another retrospective on this season, and then I will uh, kind of go into the into the, my cave for a little while, but I'll continue putting episodes out on the stream uh, by re-releasing episodes uh, so that you'll have something there, and uh, maybe I'll put some new content out there. Uh, what I'll, Maybe I'll do some, uh, some reflection on what my interview skills were like at that time, things I would do differently, you know, who knows, we'll see, or we'll sort of cross that bridge when we get to it, um, but at this time, I just want to let you know, audience, that um, life has been a little wacky, and I've been having some, like, existential angst about this podcast, I love it, but it's also a big project, and I'm not getting paid for it, <laughs> so I, uh, you know, rather than, you know, rage quitting entirely, I'm just going to pare, pare down the release schedule, one new episode a week, uh, one new episode a month, but I'll still stay in the stream by uh, giving you stuff every two weeks. So I hope that, you know, gives you an idea what's going on behind the scenes. And, um, you know, it'd be, just be nice to hear from you, the audience, uh, one way or the other. It'd be nice to either, if you want to shoot me an email directly, say, hey, I like your stuff. Be cool uh, at hello at eugenehkim. That's uh, hello at eugenehkim. Kim. Or you can uh, leave a rating review on iTunes or wherever favorite podcasting apps, just so I can let you know, let, like I can find out what are you guys thinking. Anyway, back to this episode with Scott H on F once again. It is May 16th, 2019. Uh, I'm sitting here with Scott H. in my Coopersburg home for the last interview in the Coopersburg home. And we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Scott, what are the four prompts? The four prompts are, I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. Is Excellent. That, right? that is correct. And uh, how do you finish that first prompt, I am? Hmm. I am. I'm no longer. I'm not a medical student anymore because we graduated. One more high five. Oh, that was good. That was crisp. So, that's that's part of my identity. But we'll unpack that a bit more because mm. I wouldn't. I still. That is not my primary identity, as mm. I have learned this year. Um, my primary identity was and still does lie in my relationship with God that I am a follower of Jesus. I am a Christian. Mm -hmm. So that's, that is still first and foremost. And then secondary to that is all the other stuff. The I'm a doctor, I'm an employer at this health network or hospital mm. system, uh, brother, friend, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's talk about uh, this past year and a half since the first interview and, um, you know, some of the trials and tribulations to get here to be able to call yourself doctor, have yeah. those two fun letters and also what has, how has your faith in, how has your faith been changed, altered, you know, strengthened, weakened 
by this whole like 18 months of wackiness. Yeah. So I'd say the biggest, the biggest lesson I've learned in all of this is what, what is my sense of identity? And when push comes to shove, where does that identity lie? Mm-hmm. So it's real easy to say that my identity is based in who God sees us to be. That's real easy to say when things are going easy, but that's very different when things are challenging or when other identities are trying to compete for that or being compromised. Mm-hmm. And that that was the lesson that I've learned in the past year. It was a lesson of where is my identity and how do I build resilience when this identity is on the rocks? Because mm-hmm. it was pretty on the rocks. Like, to, like uh, oh, yeah. you know, like, I, I, I have a pretty decent, I think I have, like, a, you know, a form, like, an outline of, like, how rough it was, but, like... Yeah, I think you and I were, you and I have been in touch in real time as this was all going down, mm-hmm. but we'll, we'll unpack it for all the listeners to, yeah. to hear about how things were going. But yeah, I think I think you do have a pretty good idea of where things were at. And like that was I could tell like that was very challenging. And it really it really scraped to the bottom of like, do you want this bro? Yeah. <laughs> like uh and uh like how much like how yeah, and, and so like uh so to, you know, imagining uh the audience, like how would you describe, you know, what this past year and a half has been for you? Okay. So a year and a half is when we did the first interview. So that would have been as we were just talking about earlier, it would have been just about when we had moved to Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was for the second half of medical school, uh, at which point you have already taken and passed one of the three steps in the medical board process. Mm-hmm. So that is the prerequisite to starting the third year of medical school. The next two years of your life are all clinical-based learning you're working in the hospital as a medical student. You're seeing patients, whether that's inpatient or outpatient. You're on different services. You're scrubbing in for surgery. You're delivering babies. You're doing well child checks. You're doing the whole spectrum of medicine. For me, that was all a very rocky process. Uh, we'll pick things up from the beginning of taking that first step of the medical board exams. Um, in summary, this was all scraping by, just barely making it through med school. But I got the two letters, so you all know how this turned out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of very smart people in medical school, and the board exam writers know that and make very difficult questions when it comes to testing these really smart people. Um, when, when being... I am, I am a medium-sized fish in a very big pond... And there are a lot of smarter, bigger fish in that pond. Mm-hmm. So for me, taking these exams is a bit of a struggle. Um, as, I, as I was studying for step one, I was not progressing at the rate that I needed to, to take it in time to start third year on time. So I opted to take some time off. And in the end, that ended up being three months of time off. But eventually I did take the boards and I passed it by the smallest of margins, which was bittersweet when I got that result. Um, Because on the one hand, 
great news. I passed it. I can keep going with my education. I didn't fail the exam. That's awesome. The other side of it was it was still by one point and one point only. Oh, wow. It was that close. Yeah. Even crazier, we took it in 2017. By 2018, they had raised the bar by two points for the pass-fail mark. Meaning, had I gotten that same score a year later, that would be a fail. Jeez. So, anyway, the bad news of that is... I mean, great news. I passed. I'm not trying to downplay that perspective at all. I'm so glad that I did pass it. But the downside of that is residency programs look at how you did on that test as a benchmark for your competitiveness when comparing to other med students. Mm -hmm. I mean... Like it or not, that's that's the game we play. Those are the rules, and if you're not if you're not a competitive applicant, there are going to be programs out there that will not even look at anything else mm-hmm. if they see grades that are borderline or, in my case, a one test exam score that was just one point above passing. They say this person's not fit to be in our program. We're not even going to explore that further. So. You know, I had gone through med school, I had passed every course up until now, but they were still just pass. We're, we're a bit more on a... We're, we're, we are stratified into different groups based on how well you did in that class. So the fact that it's a pass is good, but it's not, it's not exceptional. Mm-hmm. So I'm going through third year with, with this in mind of, I just barely got to this point. And now I'm still, I'm now three months behind everybody else trying to play catch up. Mm -hmm. So we're doing our, we're doing our clinical thing. And third year is an incredibly trying time for every med student. Mm -hmm. You're getting used to this new life that is clinical duties. And you're trying to figure out how to do all of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm over here just trying to tread water, staying afloat (laughs) and like the tip of my nose and my lips are above the water, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. While other people might be treading water to their chest or their shoulders, and it's like, yeah, it's it's taxing, it's tiring, but I'm doing okay. I'm sitting here. I'm just like, I'm just trying to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Literally, just trying to get enough air to keep going for the next exam. Mm-hmm. Trying to pass everything, and it was it was challenging. Uh, just the volume of things that you need to know and balancing that with clinical duties was really, it was uniquely challenging for me. Mm-hmm. So we're going through all that. And then in addition to that, I'm trying to chip away at this rotation that I've now skipped. This is 12 weeks of clinicals that I've had to take time off and I want to be able to catch up as quickly as I can, which we'll get to, um, so I'm doing things like whenever we have a vacation, whether that's a week, two weeks, I'm using that time to do to make up this rotation. Mm. So I'm I'm chipping away at it. First it was from like twelve weeks, we chipped it down to nine because in that time off I was still doing like half a day to a day of stuff per week. So we're all so and, and also so from from when you took step one and then you started rotations, you were going like nonstop, nonstop. Like I there was I, no. I I might have had a week or two weeks off after taking step one, which I didn't have my score yet, but was going into clinical rotations. 
So it wasn't totally nonstop, but it was pretty close. It was like 10 to 11 weeks of studying in addition to the three to four months that we had had before of mm. intense studying every day and then add on top of that the other 10 weeks. Mm. It's kind of like, you know, nobody, nobody enjoyed that period of step studying. Like that was, that was nightmarish for everybody <laughs> going into that. Mm. But imagine doing that at full intensity and then right as you're about to take it, you say, I need to do this for another three months because, the, man, it's it's like going on a sprint pace and then realizing you're ha you have to run a marathon. Mm -hmm. So, Jeez. yeah, there, wa there was not much recovery time after that. It was like two weeks and Oof. then jump right into clinicals. Mm -hmm. and so you chipped it down, the 12 yep. weeks down we to... Well, we chipped it, started at 12 weeks. By the end of step studying, I had chipped it down to nine because I was still doing some clinical stuff in that time. Mm -hmm. So splitting my duties between studying for step one and doing like a day of rotations per week, family medicine, longitudinal stuff. Mm -hmm. So that chipped it down to about nine. Mm -hmm. Winter break, I worked those two weeks, chipped it down to about seven. And then I can't remember if I worked... I can't remember if I worked spring break or not. I might have actually taken that that week off. And then at the end of third year, I chipped it down by another two weeks before we started fourth year. So I chipped it down from 12 weeks to five, which that's that's pretty formidable when you're adding that on top of a normal third year schedule. Mm -hmm. Like that, that was pretty good. Mm -hmm. It's not like there's a lot of downtime. Right, right. right. <laughs> I mean... There's enough to like, yeah, keep you right. Going. Like, like winter break between doing internal medicine and then surgery, I did not have a vacation. Like that was six months of working straight through. Mm. Five to six days a week of 12, 12 hour days, and yeah. during two of the most intense rotations, whether that's time or knowledge intensive, like they were, they were intense rotations. But anyway, we get to fourth year, and then we have another board exam come up, step two, of which there are two parts. There's the clinical knowledge, and then there's clinical skills, CK and CS. So here's the challenge of all those psychological, like the psychological warfare of <laughs> step one didn't, was, it, it was a bad experience, mm. to put it mildly. So now here's here's a similar thing that you got to do again, and you know I'm and the questions are harder. Yeah, the questions longer. are harder. They're a little bit more in depth, and yeah, like it's it's a it's a new evolution of a similar beast. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking to other people, and that being said, there's still you know our academic advisors in Tampa and in Pennsylvania saying you know what, step two is a different animal, the questions are going to be more based on your experience as opposed to just book knowledge. Try not to let your experiences with step one impact how you do with step two. But in my mind, I guess this also comes back to the identity of it, I'm a realist. <laughs> I do not sugarcoat things. I do not look at the bright side if the bright side is a is an unlikely outcome. Mm -hmm. I will I will straight up tell you whether things are going well or if things are not going well. 
Which I think is a benefit because that means if I'm telling you that it's going to be okay, it really will be okay. I'm not trying to puff you up for anything with that. Mm -hmm. And if I tell you things are not, things are looking dire, it means things really are looking dire. I'm not, I'm not catastrophizing anything. It's, this is as real of an assessment of the situation as I can give you. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's going to come into play as we unpack the end of third year, first half of fourth year. Um, so step two is a different beast. I'm studying for it. And again, I, I'm at the point now that, you know, I've already been, I was three months behind before with third year. <laughs> I'm trying to chip away at that rotation. I can't take step two until I finish that rotation. Oh, geez. So we go through fourth year orientation and after that is when I started making up that rotation from third year. So everybody else is taking step two, the two parts of it, the CK and the CS, while we're doing that fourth year orientation because they're putting in the two weeks of solid studying. It doesn't require as much studying as the first uh, step one. Instead of it being three months of study time, most people I'd say took two to four weeks max to study for this. Because they want that clinical knowledge to be fresh from third year. They don't want to lose anything when they go to take it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they might take the first two weeks off after orientation and then go take the test. And then go do all the fun things of fourth year. Doing your away rotations at the place that you might want to work for residency. Going away for interviews and all these other exciting things. For me... I have to put all of that off by a month because I'm making up this rotation. However, because of the program that I'm trying to match into, that match day is a good three months earlier. So if you can picture the timeline here, my third year struggles are pushing my schedule back, but my professional aspirations after medical school are pushing all of my obligations up and here's a student that's already not great at taking exams with that study time being the only compressible <laughs> time so basically what that means is I had my, my third year makeup third year rotation took until the end of July and then I had to do an away rotation in September and submit my residency application by mid-October, which meant that I had to do all of my interviews and both parts of the board exam in about a four-week span. Jeez. If that's not setting somebody up for failure, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. Skilla and Charybdis, right? <laughs> Rock and hard Right, place. right. There's, there is no, and there was no other way to move things around. I, because your professional program would not allow you to take like a year off or something. Correct. Yeah. So you were just like, either I thread this needle or I do not become right. a It's It is an all or nothing kind of deal. It's, I, I either do this or I face some professional ramifications that are significantly worse. Mm -hmm. And even though the outcome looked bleak, I'm going to work as hard as I can to make that outcome a positive one. Mm -hmm. So, nose meat grindstone. Mm -hmm. And I, I did what I needed to do for those, those four weeks. I took, the, I took 
CS about halfway into August. Um, that there wasn't as much studying for that one because that's more of a skills assessment. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of studying, but not much. And then the clinical knowledge I took on the very last possible day before I needed to leave town for my away rotation, which for some programs is optional. For me, it was mandatory. Mm-hmm. So that was another thing that was there was no wiggle room. That had to be done that day, that or that month, excuse me, for mm-hmm. September. But yeah. They, they were done. There was nothing I could do to change anything. I wouldn't have gone back and changed anything in the way that I was studying or the amount of time that I was putting in. It was about as optimal as things could have been. Mm-hmm. So, you know, feeling pretty good about it. So I now go to this away rotation, which is, it was probably about 800 miles from Pennsylvania. New, new state, new faces, New new culture, everything was different. And I'm I'm in this hotel living pretty much by myself and I go to work, I go back to my hotel, answer some emails. First day? This is this is just sort of a general overview oh, gotcha, of what gotcha. life was like on that away rotation. Gotcha. Okay. So you go to work, you do your I you know, keep contacts, things like that, and eat something, whether it's go take out food or cook something in the microwave and go home. There was no kitchen that I could use. So life was just looking very different. Oh, what also made things interesting was the day before I flew out, my phone died. <laughs> like the the uh, software or the hardware in it just completely crashed and the, the phone became a paperweight. Jeez. So I also went through this entire rotation without a cell phone, which that's fun. Mm-hmm. New new place, and you you have no use of, no way of really communicating. It's like wow, like I guess these landlines in the hotel are actually useful for something. That <laughs> that was honestly the only way that I could like contact people. Jeez. That and maybe like using Google Hangouts to text people from my computer, which I could check maybe like a couple times, like in the evening, but certainly not during the day at work. So you're basically on Mars. Yeah, like you're just. And, to make matters worse, even my hotel room was in, like, the furthest corner of the hotel where I'm pretty sure I was as far away from the Wi-Fi signal <laughs> as possible. So my internet speeds were, like, dial-up speed. Mm. It was bad. Jeez. Take Loading a picture took, like, 30 seconds. Like, it, Facebook, no. It was just, like, that's not even worth it anymore. Jeez. It was like it, your deployment. It was like you were deployed. It, it felt like a deployment. Wow. Yes. Okay, yeah. So that's, that's happening. And then I guess we're now about three weeks into that rotation, the fourth week being the last one. And I checked my email. I think I must have checked it somewhere at work, maybe from like one of the desktop computers. And I had gotten an email from somebody at Lehigh Valley through, you know, our hospital back home. And it was the Dean of Student Affairs, and, you know, subject was checking in, and she just said, hey, just wanted to see how you're doing. And I'm thinking, oh, that's really nice of you. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm, I'm doing this away rotation, things are kind of weird right now, and I don't have a phone, but, you know, life, life is going pretty good. This is an interesting look into what my future will look like. 
But, you know, I still have to, I'm still thinking, like, why are you asking me that? It's nice, that's really boy. sweet of you, but that's kind of out of the blue. Yeah. And then I started putting the pieces together. I was like, oh, wait. I took that exam three weeks ago. It takes about three weeks for results to come out. Oh, no. <laughs> so I, I can't check this until I get home. Mm-hmm. But, you know, having the entire back half of the day and the drive home, you're just, just thinking, thinking. Like, this isn't going to go well. This, why else would she be emailing me? The, and this goes back to the slow internet connection again of, you know, it's literally, it took about 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes to upload that score report between finding my password, going to the website, mm-hmm. logging in when your internet speeds are dial up or worse. Like it was, it was frustrating. I would, and you know, as it, as it turned out, I did in fact fail that exam. Um, yeah, I think I was about five points short of passing. Jeez. So it was, it was devastating. I'd say that was probably rock bottom of my professional career of you failed this exam. There are going to be professional ramifications beyond just not being a competitive applicant anymore. This now puts me in like a probationary period with with the scholarship that I'm doing mm-hmm. like this is, and I'm, I'm all alone. I can't talk to anybody about this. There's nobody else around. I'm physically isolated. I'm emotionally isolated. And I've received one of the worst news news in my professional career. Mm-hmm. Like this is rock bottom. I think I was literally like, taking non-breakable things and throwing them against the wall. It was frustrating in a hotel room, mm-hmm. like throwing pillows and clothes and whatever, like anything that I could grab and just like throwing it. Just to I like was, make right, it physical. There, there was no other outlet. Yeah. Like, man, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not a person that like gets physically aggressive, violent when something is emotionally, you know, taxing. So it was, but man, it was the only thing I could do. And, you know, being on the other immediate other side of it, that didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it did, but it didn't. Oh gosh. <laughs> you could, you could throw all of the bed linens across the room at a wall and you still feel just as angry. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I had asked, I was on an inpatient rotation that week. And I came in at like 5 a.m. the next morning and I said to my senior, I was like, look, here's what happened. I honestly don't know what, what, I honestly don't even know what logistics need to happen in the next day because of this. But can I please just take the morning to put out some fires? And he was like, yeah, do whatever you need to do. Like, go, actually, initially I just asked for like a couple of hours. Like, can I wait until... Can I not take any patients today and then just join up with you guys partway through rounds or at the end of rounds? And then eventually he just came back in and said, take the whole day off. You need to go figure this stuff out. Mm-hmm. It's not the end of the world, but go do what you need to do. And I was like, okay, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that mo- like, I guess, so you, what I'm hearing from you is like this, from, from that email, there's just, you're all in your head, you know? Yes. And then you go home 
or you go to the hotel, you have this frustrating internet thing with your computer, and you're like, ah, go faster, and then you have, you receive this news, and then I imagine sleep was terrible that night. Oh, yeah. And then when you go in, it's like having that senior tell you, like, do what you gotta do, man. Must have been, like, the first, like, that, like, it sounds like... That was the first little break in a while. Yeah. That was the first good news that I had had since the previous day. Yeah. And like, was it like, was it nice? Like, was it, was it just like, oh, like, just take a second, just, and then go take care of those fires. You know, honestly, I probably wasn't even so mindful at that time to view it that way. But I think, I think it was a good expression on his end of empathy of, I know what it's like to do poorly on Mm. an official exam. It's going to be okay. But just go take the morning to do whatever it is you need to do. Mm-hmm. We get it. And I think that's something that family medicine is a little bit different than other specialties where people are more competitive. That failing a board exam is a bit more common in family medicine residents as it is in orthopedic surgery. Mm-hmm. Something that's... Where the, like the, the sheer selecting factors. It's like, right. It's like you have to be like, you know. It's right. like it's the MBA. Like, oh, like only a 250? Yeah. Oh, man. When a passing score is 209. Mm. It's like, you know, doing poorly for them is a whole different definition than doing poorly for mm-hmm. mere mortals. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, yeah, like that was that was a nice little break throughout the day. I, I called all kinds of people, whether it was student affairs at USF or at mm-hmm. Lehigh Valley Hospital, um, my employer... Like, I just, I had to, like, literally write down, and also, of course, friends and family, and tell them what's going on, and keep them in the loop. So, like, I'm trying to just keep all these, all these balls in the air as you're juggling them, and getting more information from each of them, and slowly piecing together of, okay, what are we, what are we going to do in the next month, the three months, the six months, of how do we compensate for all of this? Mm-hmm. What's the game plan? Honestly, that was probably, like, I think I jumped to that conclusion a bit faster than I thought I would. I thought I would be wallowing in the despair a little bit more, but it was more like, okay, this is going back to the realist in me of, okay, this is what happened. I can't change it. So the only thing I can change is what we're going to do right now. Mm -hmm. So let's prepare for the future. Let's prioritize and execute. So, uh, So you took that morning off. How quickly in the in like all those calls were you like there is a path forward? Like how quickly did you figure that out? That like, you know, through all the piecing things together yeah, that you're it like, was, it was we probably can do sometime that morning after looking things up. I gotcha. mean a lot of it, you know, you had to wait until the next business day to get a hold of these people in the office mm. and then figure out what was gonna happen. And whether it was stuff with the military, um, I'm just gonna say it at this point. It's, trying to dance around it. Um, whether it was trying to piece together what are the ramifications of failing a board exam and not having it by the cutoff that they want of pass it at that time or things with USF, with the medical school, academic stuff. Mm-hmm. How do I piece this together to actually graduate on time? But I think once I had talked to everybody at least the first iteration through, I had a pretty good game plan of, okay, there is a way out. And that way out was a matter of, you know, you get back, you cancel the other away rotation that you were going to do, mm-hmm. use that time to study instead, 
take the board exam again after maybe like three or four weeks of studying. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully you'll have that passing test score by the time your residency application is being reviewed so that even though you're past the deadline of when it was due, at least programs will see the passing score when they're evaluating whether they want you in their program, Mm -hmm. which would happen somewhere around November. And so when would you sit again? When did you sit Um, for the second time around? I think I had scheduled it for early November, I think it was. Gotcha. So that way there would be about a three-week turnaround. The score would be available somewhere around like Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And I think it was that following week that the residency programs would meet to figure out who was going where. Mm -hmm. So... That was that was plan B. Plan A was take it, on time, pass it, and clear sailing. <laughs> this was plan B. Mm-hmm. So that was all set in motion. I came back home to Pennsylvania with that game plan, changed around things with USF. USF was incredible. Shout out to Student Affairs at Lehigh Valley and at USF because they are amazing. They will go to the ends of the earth and then some to make sure that you mm. succeed professionally. So, And I... I could not have done it without them. So major shout out to them. Um, they made sure that logistically everything was in in place to re, re-register for the board exam and take that and do whatever I needed to do to pass CK. So let's see. Um, October, I came back home. I changed the rotation schedule around a little bit so that I started an online course from the month of October was studying for that, and then concomitantly studying for CK. I still had one more interview left, the very last one. Went to that, had to take ownership of the fact that I had failed CK on that interview, bring that up and discuss it with them, which was interesting. Um, They were very understanding of what had happened and and all that. Um, So I did that, and then... Well, no, I'll, go ahead. I'll ask later. Go ahead. No, was, ask now. Was, was that the program you ended up getting into? It was. Very interesting. We'll, we'll it is back. very interesting. We'll, we'll circle back to that. That is, it was, it was the program that I ranked as my number two, and it, they ended up, that ended up being where I'm going. Wow. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that the one that, the one where I was on paper bona fide, the least qualified to go for was mm. where I actually ended up. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll circle back around yeah. to that a little later in the story. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was maybe two days after that interview is when the other body shock came in of, <laughs> remember that other board exam, the clinical skills? Yeah, you failed that one too. Oh. Honestly, I, at this point, I was I was distraught, upset, mad about the first one, but like, Getting that news was like, that was just more of like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> That's a test that I think has like a 98 or 99% pass rate. Mm-hmm. Like to the point that some clinicians have actually said, why are we even still giving this exam? They, they all pass it. And yet I failed it. I was just like, really? Just like a bam, bam. Right. Like, way to kick a man when he's down. But, you know, I... I I take ownership of that too. I did not dance around that. 
Fortunately, I didn't have to explain that one in any more interviews. <laughs> All the interviews were done at that point. And I'm very glad I didn't get the result to that until after that last interview. That mm -hmm. would have been... That would have just been a little bit too much of a blow to the confidence. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, now we're going to go through this whole song and dance again of let's talk to student affairs at USF and at Lehigh mm. Valley and let's figure out how to do this one. So here's another obligation of something you need to, to make up post-haste. So, yeah, um, that all happens Mid-October hits, I'm officially, at this point, on academic probation with the military because I did not give them passing board results in time. Uh, that means that the stipend that I was receiving is now being frozen. My income is now zero dollars. Uh, there's no loans to even compensate for that. It, like, I'm starting to look into, like, is it reasonable to start taking out a loan? Like, I should have enough of an emergency fund that I should be good, but, you know, it's not going to be that long because I'm taking it in November and I should be, I'll be, I'll be back in good standing by the end of November. Two months max. I can handle that. Mm -hmm. That was plan B. Well, actually, now I'd say we're on plan C because now we've added on taking <laughs> step two to CS. So plan C, plan C is in effect of, we're going to retake both of these board exams. Mm -hmm. Um... CS, the first available date, was somewhere in, like, I think it was in December. Jeez. Like, late December. But it was in Philadelphia. It was close by. I was grateful mm. for that. Didn't have to fly anywhere. So, cool. Registered for that. It was the day after Christmas, actually. That was when it was... That was when I scheduled it to be. Mm hmm So, that works out okay, because they... The military didn't need a passing CS score until February. So... Actually, to this point, I didn't tell the military about failing CS. They didn't need to know at this point. <laughs> if they're listening, they know now. <laughs> but they wanted to need to know. But, any, but anyway, it didn't really matter because they just needed a passing score report by February. That was not the part that was contingent on my scholarship. Mm. It was not fail. It was failing CK mm. that was mm. keeping me. That was what was putting me in this academic probation. Gotcha. So once I had passed that, then I can get back on it. Passing CS was not required yet. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I had failed it while disappointing was not a deal breaker for anything. As long as I took it and passed it by that February date. Mm -hmm. So that was all set. I was like, cool, that's plan C. We're going to take CK in early November, take CS in late December, have all the passing score reports. I find out where I go. Everything is good to go. So I'm studying. It's now October. All of this drama is impacting the study routine, too. And I'm, mm -hmm. again, not progressing as much as I need to. I don't feel like I'm doing any better than I was in August. So now it's a little bit concerning. And I ended up pushing the date back on CK until early December. Mm. So what that does is that now compromises having a passing mm -hmm. score report in time for the match. Mm -hmm. That means program directors are going to see that I failed it, and I have not retaken it since. So that's going to... I had to, I had to weigh out the pros and cons of, should I try taking it and have about the same risk factor, like probability of passing it that I did back in August? Well, that didn't fare so well, so... <laughs> I don't feel good enough to take it in early November. We need to push this back another month. Mm -hmm. And that's what I ended up doing. 
And the downside of that is, like I just said, now the residency program is going to see that that is the failing the failing score report, and nothing has has been done to correct that. So, all right. So that that now we're where are we on Plan D? <laughs> yeah, Plan Plan D puts puts this exam on. Um, Let's see, December 3rd, 3rd or 4th, somewhere, right on December 4th. It's a Monday. Um, so we get to, we're, we're now going through Thanksgiving. This, this is the good news of it. The studying is finally getting a little bit better. Like, scores are going, going up. My confidence is growing. Like, I'm still not doing great on the practice quizzes, but I'm getting the why a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Like I'm understanding why I'm getting these things wrong and I'm starting to compensate for that and seeing some mild improvements. Mm -hmm. Like just enough that I'd say like, you know, my confidence going in, if it, let's say the exam was December 4th, like the weekend before December 2nd, 3rd, the, my confidence is maybe at like a 70 to 80% of, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think I could comfortably pass this test. I feel good about that. I then get an email from Prometric, the testing center that hosts the board exam, the day before I'm supposed to take it. And they say, we're writing to inform you that we're canceling your exam date. The testing center is being closed for the month of December. We'll reschedule you for the next nearest location as soon as possible. We'll contact you when we do that. I'm like... You can't do this to me the day before an exam. No. This is not good. So whatever confidence I had going into that, it's like, okay, now you need to maintain that confidence for the next two, three, four weeks, whenever they reschedule it. They ended up rescheduling it for about two weeks later. So it was like, okay, um, I feel good right now. But just like when you're cramming for any other test, like you feel great the night before once you've done all the cramming, that knowledge is gone by the next day. Mm -hmm. It feels very similar to that when I was studying for this board exam. Like whatever confident love, confidence level I had going into that date dropped dramatically two weeks later. Mm -hmm. Like I was not able to maintain that. The other part of that that was in there was my match day, when I find out where I go to residency, was in that two-week window. So there was all of that drama on top of that of figuring out where am I going to spend the next three years of my life, and it's out of my hands. Now it's just a matter of them telling me where did I match. Like, that happened while I was studying for boards. Um, for any other medical students or doctors that are listening, like, the reality of the situation was I matched before I had taken and passed either of my step two exams. <laughs> like anyone that knows the progression of how these things need to happen in the timeline, this is such a jacked up order. <laughs> it's unreal. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is like saying something that this is something that should have happened nine months in advance. 9 to 12 months in advance of when you match. Because match, you know, for everybody else happens in the middle of March. Mm -hmm. You take your step two, like, the summer before that. Like, nine months before. Here's me with this very early match date, and I've not even passed my board exams, and I'm not taking them until after. It's like, this is 
this is so wacky. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I ended up matching at my number two choice. The one um, where you had explained? The one, yep, yeah. the one that was on my last interview day, the one where I had explained that I had failed these board exams and had to take ownership of that. But I, I guess it just goes to show somebody, as I was talking to other professional advisors, coaches, peers at Lehigh Valley, somebody made the observation here of it just goes to show how much they really wanted you to be there. That if they ranked you highly, that you matched there. And I was like, that's, that's a good point. It, it certainly wasn't my grades or, or exam scores that got me there. Mm-hmm. They were mediocre at best. Mm-hmm. They were subpar. <laughs> I won't even say mediocre. Yeah. They, were, they were deficient. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's... Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm just imagining this program director talking to you and asking you about the CK score. And, you know, like, I imagine you in the experience of that was just like, this is going terribly. I can't believe this is happening. But then for the program director, I think it is such a, it was probably, I mean, and maybe that, you know, I'm just imagining this imagination time Mm -hmm. is that it was such a valuable opportunity for the program director to understand, like, how does this person own up to a mistake? Yeah. You know, because in a couple months, it's going to be life or death. You know, yeah. and like when, when patients die from like um, you entered the wrong dosage for something, like how does that, how is that going to shake out? Because for a lot of people going into medical school, I don't think, I mean, I personally don't know any other students that have gone through the rigmarole that you have, you know, and the, the character that that reveals is incredibly valuable when you're talking about a physician. You yes. Know? And I think that, you know, I think... And how do you respond when things are going so difficult and you don't know what the outcome is going to be? Mm-hmm. Are you going to have the resilience to keep on fighting, to keep mm-hmm. to keep on inching towards that goal of what you're trying to get, mm-hmm. even when the results are not... are taking you further from that? Mm-hmm. And like like you just said, that that answers in practice a question that everyone tries to get at theoretically in an Mm. interview of tell Mm -hmm. me about a time when you did, when you went through a difficult experience and how did you get through it? Mm -hmm. I don't need to theorize or tell you a story here. I'm sharing in real time what's happening Mm -hmm. and you're seeing it and you're seeing that I am still resilient enough to keep on fighting for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, I think a great example of just like, if you were, if you were, if you, I don't know how you, I mean, maybe that is a good point to ask, like, what was that experience of that interview and owning up to it? Because you kind of like talked, you described it a little bit, but like, um, I imagine like if you had tried to like be all bluster, the dude, the, the program director would just be like, mm, you know, yeah. and like, versus like being vulnerable and being like, look, this sucks, you know? And like, the, just being like, this is what's happening. I'm, these are the things I'm doing to resolve it. But it's at the same time, it's like. This is what's happening, you know? Well, it's interesting that around that same time, I had also just finished reading a book called Extreme Ownership. Oh, by Jocko? By Jocko. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so hearing hearing his stories of being, being a Navy SEALs officer in Operation Iraqi Freedom and some of the mistakes that were made under his watch and taking ownership of those things... Like, I think that that helped me frame the language with which I was going to talk about my own struggles Mm. in my medical career. And like you just said, not skirt around things or try to shift blame, but, but taking ownership of that. 
And one of the things that I learned in that experience is it's a very fine line between what what looks what is what is the difference between finding the root cause of why this happened versus shifting blame onto mm. that thing. And it, it does become a bit of a gray area and it's all it's all about how are you going to frame this in your mind and how are you going to convey that to the person listening? Because we'll, we'll take the example of what I what I've been going through of, okay, I failed a board exam. I failed two board exams. Is it because the root cause was I only had four weeks to study for it because of the way that my fourth year schedule panned out? Am I, am I using that to explain the root cause of this is why it happened? Or am I externally putting the blame on it saying like, well, I would have passed it if I had more time. Mm, I see what you're saying. You can see how that becomes a, it becomes a very finesse topic to talk about. And I, I had another, another prof- professional advisor here at Lehigh Valley that recommended that I read, read Extreme Ownership. A great <laughs> book recommend. Thanks, thanks Dr. Bean. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice Dr. Bean. So he, um, he's, he's the one that tipped me off to that book. And he and I were talking about it around the time of submitting like letters of intent for residency, like explaining all of this. And we had worked through some of the language and how I had framed a letter that I had written of what does it, what looks, what will make this sound like explaining root cause versus shifting blame. Mm -hmm. And actually what we ended up doing was we didn't even really mention that at all. We just kind of said, yeah, I failed a board exam. Didn't say why, didn't try to explain it, just said, I'm taking ownership of it, here's what I'm doing to correct it. Like, does it, does explaining the root cause in a letter really change anything? No, it just makes it sound like you're shifting the blame. It makes it a lot longer, too. (laughs) Right, and when you're, when you're writing a letter of intent, where do you want the meat of the letter to be, but rather on the good things? Mm -hmm. You don't want to be explaining away some of the bad things, Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. at the end saying... But I'd really like to be in your program. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it was... And I, I framed the that interview in a very similar manner in hindsight. Like, mm. I tried not to focus on the why of it too much, even though I had a pretty good idea of what that why was, mm-hmm. but rather focus on what what is the plan, what am I doing differently now to make sure that the outcome is different. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was a wacky time, um, and so just, so we we're we're kind of circling back. But you so you got the match you got you matched yes, and then you still, yeah we'll, but we'll, you still, we'll wrap up yeah we'll wrap up that the conclusion of that story really quickly. So I got the match results, ended up at my number two choice, which was a very close ranking for me to my number one. It was really just came down to location. Both programs were culturally very similar, mm-hmm. so. I was still really, I'm still really happy that that's where I ended up. Um, took, I took CK on December 17th. Then a week later, on December 26th is when I took CS. Um, at that point it was like, okay, the line in the sand was like a hundred yards ago. Like there's, (laughs) we are so far past the line in the sand of can't go back. Like you need to take this exam now. There is no more delaying it. Mm. And my confidence level, as we talked about before, if it was like 70 or 80% back in the beginning of December, 
it was like at 20% this time. Like my quiz scores went down in that time. Mm -hmm. Like down to the levels that they were back in August. Like I was feeling very, very unconfident getting back to that realism part of me. Like I said, I, I walked out of that exam with like just the most dumbfounded (laughs) mindset of, I just failed that exam again. This, this is awful. Like, man, I, I can't even be angry anymore. Like, I, I just can't help but laugh at how screwed up this all is. Mm-hmm. I just screwed up my career. <laughs> Took CS. CS went awesome. Like, I, I went through that thing and like, okay, I know what you're looking for now. I know what the day is going to be like. We ain't failing this one again. Like, that one knocked it out of the park. It was fine on that. Like, not even concerned. But I was like, CK is like, man... I just, I just ruined everything. And not catastrophizing. We're, we're talking of, this is the second time of failing the same board exam. This is probably grounds for being kicked out of the military scholarship. Mm-hmm. Like, that is not unheard of. I've heard of it for less. You know? Yes. I've, we've both seen lesser things be grounds for removal from that scholarship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's like taking ownership of that, just... You know, trudge through. You can you can't change what was in the past. Just do what you can do today. I was on my sub internship that month, so like that was fun. Spending twelve to fourteen hours a day in the hospital for four weeks, and just then waiting. Yep, just and waiting. in the in the downtime that you don't have, you're trying to study for that exam, and then I went from that to going and we're doing my ICU rotation the next month. Cause like I've been putting off all of these tough rotations until after boards, like, you know, just trying to go through all of that and thinking like, this may not all, this may not even matter. Like if I failed the board exam, like there's really no reason for me to show up to work the next day. Like I'm not going to graduate on time. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're looking at, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to the... Uh, there's, there were a few different possible outcomes, but we'll talk about that more in a little bit. I want to I wanna wrap the story up because we've been talking about the this one story for like <laughs> half an hour. I it's want, a big one. It's I a know. Big one. Our, our listeners are probably like, come on, mm-hmm. get, to the, get to the point. Mm-hmm. But we're getting there. We're getting there. So December is when I took C, CK and CS. CS results take a couple of months. They weren't going to come out until February, but I was confident that that went well. I'm not even concerned about it. Mm-hmm. It was as good as a pass for me. Um, C C K results come out. It's about three to four weeks, usually three weeks in the non peak hour, non peak times of the year. So like, and it's always on a Wednesday. I've taken board exams enough times now that <laughs> I I know when these things come out. Mm-hmm. It's it's eleven a.m. on a Wednesday. Wow, good to know. So so yeah, um, I I'm looking at the calendar. It's like okay. The next day is three weeks, three weeks later on a Wednesday from when I took the exam. Score results are going to come out today. I very intentionally left my phone at home when I went to work because I was not going to check my email. I told all the people that wanted to get in contact with me, like whether that was USF people that found out my score before I did or friends, whatever. I said, don't ask me. I'm leaving my phone at home. Don't, don't try to reach out to me. I love you guys, but not right now. I love you guys, but don't contact me right now. It's not that I don't love you right now. <laughs> that, that, 
That came out a little bit wrong. But I love you guys, but not now. <laughs> no, I love you guys all the time, but mm, you know what I mean. Yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. Um, so, you know, my roommate knows that this this is when the results are coming back. He sees me as soon as I get back and he says, so how did it go? I was like, I left my phone at home. I don't know. I'm checking it right now. So, you know, he's hovering over my shoulder. We're both looking at the computer. I pull up the website and no new results. Okay. Wasn't today. Let's wait one more week. Let, like he was, he was checking all the forums and stuff and he had heard that people were getting score reports, but we're guessing because of that Christmas, New Year's being in between, like maybe it pushed things off by a week. Okay, let's wait one more week. That was a tantalizing day, but let's let's draw it out for one more week. Why don't we? It's 168 hours. You know yeah. what's that? What's, mm, yeah, and let's let's go through that torture of another day of knowing that your fate your fate has been set somewhere, and you have a score report, but you're 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 stuck in the ICU. You're working. Mm-hmm. Which, to put all this in perspective, this is like a total side note, but, you know, the ICU is a place where the sickest of the sick people will go. I'd say about a third of the people go home, about a third of the people go to some other unit, whether that's a physical rehab or a med surge unit, like a step-down unit in the hospital, but about a third of them get transferred somewhere, so a third, a third go home a third go to another place in the hospital, and a third don't go home. A third die. You know, of course, these numbers are all very general, but it gives you the idea of how realistic life is in the ICU. It is physically taxing. It is emotionally taxing. It is mentally taxing. It is a hard place to work. And it was it was really helpful for me to put things in perspective of... Mm. As awful as the things are that I'm going through right now, professionally, academically, whatever, these family members are going through so much more. And mm-hmm. like that, that really just puts things in the perspective of, I'm so grateful that I'm healthy, <laughs> that I'm doing the job that I want to do. And even if I might not be doing this job next week, depending on how the score report turns out, it's been one heck of a ride. <laughs> and like just really appreciating all of those moments mm-hmm. because this whole professional thing was in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Um, so another week goes by. I did the same thing as the week before. I left my phone at home. I didn't check it till I got home. And I'm, I'm again, my roommate is in my room. We're looking on my computer. I'm pulling things up. Internet is much faster than it was back in the hotel, which, thank goodness for that. Mm-hmm. And I, I pull it up, and I passed by a very wide margin. <laughs> like, that was, that was exhilarating. To the point that, like, I could not even believe that that was my score report. Like, mm. it, if, if my confidence was at, like, a 20%, on test day of whether or not I passed it. Like, there's there's no way I made that point jump. I think a normal point jump between step one and step two is, what, something like 12, 13 points? Like, that, that from, like, your perspective and other med students, like, that's about on par, right? Mm-hmm. Like, 12, 13 points. I think my, 
I think my point spread was somewhere around like 45. Jeez. Like, that's how much better this went than step one. Jeez. Like, by percentile, it was certainly not the most impressive of scores, but when looking at it in that light, I killed it. Mm-hmm. Like, it was out of the park, by a wide margin, solid pass. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, I, I have no words to explain this. Like, I am just beyond relieved that this all worked out. And it was that, was, that was the outcome at which everything else becomes okay after that. Because mm-hmm. it means that I don't have to take any more board exams this year. It means I'm no longer going to be on an academic probation with the military. Because mind you, this whole time, I've not been getting paid since like October. So from like October to January, going about four months without pay. And living off of savings. And not knowing how much longer I'd have to do that. But, like, it all became okay at that point. I'm getting paid again. I'm going to graduate on time. I'm going to graduate, period. Mm -hmm. I don't have to make up any more rotations. The way that we had scheduled my fourth year, like, it just, like, by puzzle pieces, it just kind of all worked out that I fulfilled the last requirement by the end of the last rotation. And, like, everything, everything just worked out to finish the year, like... All the storm clouds were behind us. Everything ahead of us is sunny skies. Mm. Like, it all just worked out. The other alternatives to not passing that, this is where we're getting into the what-if scenarios that I'm going through in those few months of... There were a couple of what-ifs of... I wasn't really sure what was going to happen, but if I had failed that exam again, the military could have done a few things. They could have let me finish medical school and then study for just that board exam and delay going into intern year, which would add some other professional challenges later on. But of the of all those scenarios, that one wouldn't be too bad. Mm-hmm. They could, if they so chose, they could release me from the scholarship. They could say, you didn't hold up your end of the contract and we're going to let you go. And we're going to send you into the civilian match. By the way, you owe us $400,000 for all the, all the money that we put into you. Probably more. Actually, yeah, it was around 400000 There was a way that for me to look it up. <laughs> yeah, it was about $400,000. No loan repayment plans. We want that all right now. Jeez. So, yeah. doing That would have been a bad scenario. Um, because now you're in the civilian match where competitiveness becomes even more of a challenge because now you're in a much larger pool of applicants mm-hmm. and I have a very mediocre step one exam score and very bad step two scores because I've now failed it twice. I mean, there's... And that, and that also, in that passing wouldn't have... That, that, that 45 point jump wouldn't have showed at all by the oh, time no, no, match no. for a round. Yeah. Well, well, we're talking of what if I didn't pass that? Well, like, what if I didn't get that 45 point jump? Yeah. Let's say I failed it on attempt number two. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, this is, this is what would have happened if, like, when, I, when I'm doing my 20% assessment of that's the probability that I think I passed that exam, what about that other 80%? Like, what's the likely outcome at this gotcha. point? Gotcha. This was this was me trying to come up with a contingency plan of what are the possible outcomes and what am I going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Like this is this is the outcome where the army releases me from the scholarship 
and sends me into the civilian match and says, good luck. Like, chum. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and here's, you, you owe us a lot of money. Yeah. So it's like, not only is this like paying off a sizable house before I even have a real job, I'm not even going to get a good residency because I am probably somewhere in the like less than fifth percentile in terms of competitiveness of all of the other applicants in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like that, I'd, I'd be lucky if a community program was going to take me. Yeah. Like it was, it would be bad, but there's still a worse outcome. Because the third possible outcome of all of this, of if I failed the exam, was the military could also say, we're releasing you from your scholarship, but you still owe us for the active duty service obligation, something like that, where you, you, you are already a commissioned officer, which you did before medical school. We're not going to release you from that part of it, meaning... You need to work for us for eight years as an officer, as something other than a doctor. Mm. No promotions at this point. You're just a, you are the lowest ranking officer and you have no applicable job skills (laughs) because you just spent the last four years in med school and that has amounted to one big goose egg. That would have probably been the worst outcome because now let's, you might be some kind of like a paper pusher, administrative monkey doing stuff and you still have this four hundred thousand dollar debt on your back and you're Mm -hmm. not even at this point like you're now putting off med school finishing med school for like eight years if you even end up going back Mm. like this might have all been for nothing Mm -hmm. so like these are the options that i'm weighing through but this was the moment where you say i passed all of that doesn't matter those aren't those aren't going to happen because I got that passing score report, and it's clear sailing. And then the last three to four months happened of just taking it easy, letting letting the chips fall as they may, and finishing fourth year and then graduating last week. It's like that. That just that's that's the very long winded story of what happened to me in the last eighteen months professionally. So this would probably be the, a good time for us to now segue up. With all of that in mind, mm-hmm. how does this impact who I am as a person? Mm-hmm. And what does that have to do with my relationship with God and with other people? And mm-hmm. how does this play out in, in real life? Mm-hmm. Not, not in some kind of a theoretical sense or like a headspace-y kind of thing of what does this look like in the messiness of life? Mm-hmm. Especially with life, with all of that stuff happening professionally. Mm-hmm. And I could probably sum all of that experience up in my identity as a physician was very severely jeopardized because there was the very real possibility that I was not going to become a doctor. Mm-hmm. Like for, for a good chunk of that, of the past year and a half. Like, even in parts of third year, where you're just kind of thinking, like, you know, the fleeting thoughts of, this is really difficult, I'm struggling, I wonder if I'm actually going to make it through all of this. That was sort of like the, you know, like the the birth pangs of starting to feel like things are going to get a little bit rocky. And then things get a whole lot worse as I got into fourth year <laughs> and all of that happened. Mm-hmm. 
kind of like kind of like going in labor. It's like you, you get the contractions at first, and oh, okay, there there is a contraction. So, I oh, think that's a contraction. Yeah, and then okay, they're more frequent, they're more intense. Okay, we're we're in labor now. <laughs> <laughs> like this this is hurting a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was it was definitely that kind of sense of like, am I going to become a doctor? Yeah, probably. It'll it'll all probably be okay. It. It's it's becoming a little more jeopardized now. It might not be okay. Red alert, things are not okay. <laughs> like, it, it just kind of went down that progression. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, it, it leads you to the question of what what do you do? You, you spend all of this time and energy and money and everything into this thing that we call medicine and trying to grow and develop in this... In this field and it's it's very easy to make the jump of this is what I do with 90% of my waking moments I'm going to identify this with who I am as a person and we make this we make the the fallacy of identifying our self-worth with how we are doing in our professional life mm-hmm. I mean you may that's that's a that's a common thing that we've all seen in medicine for, for people whose careers may not be quite as time or energy intensive. We might put that identity in other things, whether that's being a parent or being a son or a daughter, a friend, like anything that we pour a lot of our time and energy to, it's very easy to identify that as your primary identity. So for anyone going through med school, that's, we've all, we all certainly would identify, like we would take part of that as part of identity, our identity. Oh, what do you, what do you do for a living? I'm a doctor. Or what did you do last week? Oh, you know, I was at work. I was taking care of patients, such and such. And like, it's, it's very easy for that to come up in conversation because we, we incorporate that as part of who we are. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a rocky time when that the outcome of becoming a doctor is bleak when you're failing board exams and you're not a competitive applicant and going through all of those struggles. But something that I learned through all of that and something that I, it was something I knew in my head, but it was only by that experience that I could say it was solidified in practice was my identity is not in who I am or what I do, but in who I am in relationship in relation with God. It's it's not to put it in like a pithy kind of saying. It's not who I am, but in whose I am. Mm-hmm. If if I am still in God's adopted family of I, I am a sinner that has been saved by the grace of God, it doesn't matter a lick of what I do professionally. That identity does not change. Mm -hmm. Everything else in this life might change. You know, the the death of a parent or a sibling or the end of a friendship or a relationship, marriage, divorce, whatever. Like, life can have its ups and downs, but that relationship does not change. I'm still equally in need of a savior and God has stepped in and done that. And he says, 
you not only are you forgiven of the sins that you have committed in thought and word and deed, but I have adopted you into my family. You belong to me. And I have your best interests in mind. All you got to do is you got to trust me through whatever happens that I love you and I care about where what you're what you're going through and where you're going. It's like that. That is that is what got me through it all. Mm. Like if it was if it was my own strength, my own fortitude, that was gone. That was gone like a month into first year of med- medical school. Like mm. I was I was out of my own steam at that point. <laughs> Like it was, it was the grace of God that gave me the strength to get through every single day of the good times and the bad times in the last four years of, of school and Lord willing for the rest of my career. And that's, yeah. And I think that this experience, especially understanding just how tenuous that identifier of of doctor is, I think you'll have through the rest of your career, a much better appreciation of like the the privilege to be able to talk to patients and to yes. be able to interact with them in this capacity when you saw how close it was to be ta- being taken away. It could have very easily all been a fantasy and mm. that outcome never would have happened. Every patient interaction from, he- from here on out, every patient interaction, every night overnight on call, every consult, like everything that I do professionally from here on out is foundationally contingent upon God got me through this experience and I'm only going through all of the professional things as a doctor because God got me through it. Like I, I, not that this was ever mine to begin with, but I owe this whole professional thing to him. Mm -hmm. Cause it was, I mean, there were some lows in there that I didn't even know about necessarily like as it was happening. And so it was just like, Man, it's like, it's, you know, like, there's the whole thing about, like, burning the boats so that you can't go back. It's like, th- like, you, you burned the ocean, man. Like, there was, there was no, it was like, you, there was just, like, one, like, as you were telling the story, it was just, like, such a very narrow, like, a slack line you had to walk across yes. to get, like, it was, like, past burning all, like, everything on fire and just, like, madness and... Right, like, don't be distracted about the immediate circumstances. Yeah, things are... Things are looking pretty fiery right now. Yeah, you're getting things thrown at you, and it was just you, like... You just got to keep your eyes on that goal of pass the sport exam so that you can graduate. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even matter if you end up taking time off or whatever it is you need to do, but like that is, professionally, that is your mission right now. You need to pass that test. Mm-hmm. Do whatever it takes to get past that milestone. Yeah, and it's such a weird thing to have it all like all on that... like. I, I don't know, I just, just... I think the weirdest part was how quickly all of those trials vanished. Mm. Like, once you get that passing score report, it's, like, to use your same analogy of you're on a slack line and there's all these, like, fu- this fire and pyrotechnics. <laughs> it's, it's literally like somebody shut off the gas switch and pff, they all went out, the lights came on. Oh, okay, I can do this now. <laughs> like, as soon as you pass, it's like, that. it just went from, like... A level ten to a level two. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, that that was the hard part. We're through it. Mm-hmm. And it was so weird coming out of that, you know, that lifestyle of study all the time. You need to be doing more practice questions. To mm-hmm. I don't have any more board exams to study for. 
I can go home and I can actually rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I met like uh, I mean I remember I think during the winter I just remember how like just physically I could tell that the stress was getting to you. Like you were just stick thin. You were like it was not it was you were, things were rough. Like thing like it was mm-hmm. not just like up here. It was like a whole physical, emotional, spiritual like trial that you went yeah. through. You know and like. Uh, you know, you're only a couple months away from it, but in so and like you know, in the grand scheme, it feels of things, like a lifetime ago. Though. Yeah, and like, like we, we've been wanting to sit down and do this conversation for a while, but like even as I'm telling the story, it feels more abstract, as if it was something I watched in a movie. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't even it it wasn't that long ago, but it feels like it was a long time ago, mm-hmm. and it it feels more removed. Mm. And I think that um, you know, like I think that. This is a good, like, that whole story was a good encapsulation of, like, the I am, especially with the the application to your faith. And I think that we can move on now to the other prompts because there are some other avenues, especially, like, uh, you know, like, before we started the interview, I wanted to talk a little bit about, like, your future imaginations of the family. And I think that'll fit well into the before. And then the when, I think that'll be a really good time to dig back into the ICU experience and just Mm -hmm. being around so much death. And being around all those sick patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, I want to give you the opportunity to address any last things in the I am before we head on. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think that pretty much sums up the I am. If things come up, we'll address them as they do. But yeah, we'll we'll move on to before before I die. Um, yeah, you, if you wanted to talk about some of the, the family stuff in there, how does how does being a Christian impact? what I'm looking to get out of, out of life. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's, it's still going to be my primary identity that I'm one of God's children, that I'm a follower of Jesus. Whether or not the other stuff happens is still kind of secondary. And it, it is certainly something that I've wrestled with too, because, you know, that's part of the human experience mm-hmm. is, you know, growth, reproduction, death. Like, you're, it's, it's the natural lifestyle of every living thing. And it's certainly natural to want that avenue of finding someone to get married to and raising a family and all of those mm-hmm. important things and practicing one's faith within the context of being in a family or in a relationship is very different than practicing it alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there've, there've been a number of people that I've even, that I've dated even in the last couple of years coming up to Pennsylvania, nothing, nothing that was ever too like long term, like nothing, nothing ended up panning out for more than, more than a few months, mm-hmm. but you know, it was enough to it was enough for me to break out of my shell because I'm not mm. the most confident of people and it was it was good to to meet some other women in organic ways and just get to know them as people and mm-hmm. explore what would this look like if we moved things towards a relationship but you know nothing had quite panned out but as I as I look towards the future you know that's something that I hope I continue to grow with to grow in my own self-confidence and being able to to find to find a woman that's willing to go along this path with me 
and letting me join the path that she's trying to live and mm-hmm. you know taking things just one step at a time let the letting the relationship happen someday getting married starting a family but even if all of that doesn't happen i'm still perfectly okay with that like if if that's the future that god has for me then great but if God has something else in mind for me, then I'm okay with that too. I mean, family at this point is, like like we had talked about before of in our pre-interview time of where is home. Home is wherever wherever I am, wherever my friends and family are. Like that's if if my if if that's home, then family to me, the people who the people are, or they're just the people that are living in my home, which we've already said is wherever I am. Mm. So if, if I'm getting involved in a church that's in whatever area that I'm living in, then they are my family. Or if I'm taking care of a battalion of soldiers and going through their ups and downs from a healthcare perspective, they're my family. Like it's, it's whoever God has put in my life. Those are the people that I'm, I'm there to serve. Whether that's from a medical standpoint or a spiritual standpoint, whatever, whatever doors God opens for me, they are my family. Mm-hmm. If God provides me with a girlfriend or fiancé or wife, whoever, in my life to, to be there too, then, then she is my family. Mm-hmm. Like whatever, whatever capacity people will be in my life, I will, I will serve, I will serve however God opens the doors for that, for that person. It sounds like, um, I mean this, this, I'll, I'll say like, this is a crucible experience this, this past year and a half for you and that it has like stripped away a lot of these layers of expectations and like, uh, I don't want to use the word entitlement, but like, you know, like that kind of yeah. just, like things that you, you think you deserve. Well, entitlement is a good word for it because we all can't help but think that if we put in the work, we deserve the reward. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we live in a very meritocratous society where I worked for eight hours on this day. I should get paid that the amount that I agreed to get paid. Mm-hmm. Or, I put in the work to get this degree, I should get this degree by the end of it. But, it's, like, like you said, there's, it's, it's entitlement, it's compensation, whatever it is that we want to call it. Like, we, we live in a society where we expect that if you do the work, you get the reward. Mm-hmm. But what happens when you're putting in the work and it doesn't work out? Then you don't get that reward. Like you said, you're... Your expectations and the reality, there might be that disconnect. Mm-hmm. They might be different. You might expect to get a medical degree, but the reality is if you fail the board exam X number of times, you might be kicked out. Mm-hmm. Like You might not be eligible to get that degree. Or you put in the work to be on this scholarship, and the reality is you might have to pay it back. <laughs> like those are, those are all things that I had to wrestle with. And yeah, if, if we kind of apply that to a relationship type of thing. Yeah, I might try I might be putting in the work to meet somebody. I might be putting myself out there. I might meet somebody and I might settle down. That'd be awesome. But if I don't, you know, that's I'm not I'm not going to say that like expectation is different from the reality there. Like I'm I'm okay with that if it works out that way. Like mm-hmm. it's, 
as long as as long as it, as it is what God wants me to do, which mm-hmm. again, it's if if it's happening, nothing's going to happen that's outside of God's plan. Mm-hmm. So, if it's happening, it's the way God intended it to happen. And I'm also thinking about um, in our, during a previous conversation. One of the things we had talked about a lot was your like the the sort of the criteria that you utilize to find a community or a church that you want to participate mm-hmm. in. And the first one was, do they have uh, do they uh, worship God's word? I believe is sort yes. of like the term you used. And then the other one is, how can I be of service to this organ like this group? Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's almost like sort of what you're like the same kind of like criteria yeah. for like a part. Is just like do, are they do they share your faith? And then how can you serve them in in a way that is right? Right. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great analogy. Um, the way that the way that I would look for a church to get involved with, of are they preaching God's word in truth, or are they bending the truth to fit their desires, agendas, whatever? Mm-hmm. That's the one side of it. And then the second thing is, as long as that's being met, is there a Scott shaped hole for me to, <laughs> to fit in this church? Are are the needs in this church something where my skill set, my abilities can be put to use? Mm-hmm. And the the funny thing is, neither of those things are about me or mm-hmm. what can the church do for me. Mm-hmm. It is as much what can I do to best help the other people that are there. And the same is the same is kind of true when looking for a relationship too. It's like, is this is this somebody that is fervently following God? Is is she is she putting her relationship with God above everything else in her life or striving to do so? Because we're not we're certainly not perfect. We're going to struggle with that. I struggled with that. I mean, it was really hard to not make medical school and my professional life an idol, to put tending to that ahead of tending to my relationship with God. So is this something that, is that something that she puts first and foremost in her life too? And then second, are the things that she's looking for something that I can provide? Mm -hmm. I mean, being in a military lifestyle of you're going to move every couple of years, you're going to go through deployments, like those are, you're working in medicine. So your hours are already ridiculous. Like, from a relationship standpoint, that's really taxing. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people might might sort of see being a military officer or being a doctor as like, oh, those are both like pros when it comes to <laughs> relationship um, stratification. I want to find something more emotionally relevant than something that sounds so analytical, but... What serves it right serves. when 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 a woman is trying to look for is this is this guy a keeper or not like those are things that were, they're not they're not hurting you at all mm-hmm. like those are those to some women more than others but like those are those are generally good things being an officer being a doctor like that's that's some, that's that's pretty cool but the you know the the downside of that is those do make relationships really challenging in the long run Mm -hmm. because once once all the the initial butterflies and highs of it all pass and you're just you're trying to 
keep the fire going long term, like those are the things that are going to stress the relationship. Mm -hmm. Being away from home or missing birthdays, weddings, family events, like all those things that we are knowingly sacrificing going into this profession. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, I guess if we're talking, getting back to the root question of before I die, you know, I just want, I want to, I want to be used wherever God puts me. Whether that's being in a long-term relationship, in a marriage, being in a certain city and state, serving a local body of Christians, serving the non-Christians that are in my workplace, the friends that I have around, just in whatever, in whatever capacity God wants me to serve, I pray that I can be open to serving whoever God is putting in my life. I like it. How do you finish that next prompt? When I die, I want. When I die. Um, so, so you brought up the, the ICU experience. I wouldn't have necessarily paired that with thinking about when I die, but I don't know. Again, I don't really have that many expectations for it. Just mm -hmm. kind of like whatever happens is the way it's going to be and save some kind of free preventable death. Mm. There's nothing I can do about it. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. If if I were to visualize it, I've heard a couple of the people on your, your podcast say, like, I don't want to die in the hospital. I, I would probably agree with that. Like, I would want to stay... I'd want to stay out of the hospital as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Like, even, even for just, like, inpatient stuff that I would live through, like... Man, just just get me out of the hospital. It's not a not an enjoyable place to be. It is financially a huge burden to be in the hospital or the ICU or wherever. Like it's if if I'm weighing out like the pros and cons of, you know, if somebody gave me that Faustian deal of you can either live till you're 95 and be in the hospital multiple times or you can die at 70 and never have never be in the hospital or have any major health problems like i i think i'd sacrifice the extra 25 years to live a relatively healthy life even if that meant dying early mm. early mm. as we would now call it like, <laughs> 100 years ago 70 wasn't by any means, early. It's pretty deep. <laughs> right. Like, you know, we're... Yeah, this is just kind of like a random side comment, but I feel like we're kind of plateauing in terms of, like, life expectancy. Like, our generation is probably going to be the first to not outlive the lifespan of our parents' generation. Like, we've, we've kind of reached that plateau. If we're not actually going down, we're, like, staying even. But... You know, I think we've we've kind of hit our peak in terms of how long can we prolong a person's life with mm. with medicine. And so, expecting somewhere in the like eighty to hundred range is probably about on par, barring any sort of accidents or preventable deaths or whatever. But like, at at what cost? But I do I want to be the person that's on twenty different medications that keep me alive and seeing half a dozen specialists and 
spending my retirement years just bouncing between doctor's visits and the nursing home and wherever else that I'm going to be? Or would I be okay with just like, you know, dying from dying from doing something awesome but <laughs> 20 or 30 years before my expected life expectancy like mm-hmm. you know i'm not i'm not too upset about dying a little bit earlier if if that's the way it works out if i'm alive till i'm 95 and on 20 different medications then so be it but you know i'm 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 okay with pretty much whatever happens just don't let me be treated by somebody that works in my job. <laughs> I I know I'm I know I'm spending my whole career trying to keep people alive as long as possible and keep them healthy, but I don't want to see somebody working in my job. I don't want to be the patient. Yeah, it's sort of like a, a chef doesn't want to go to a restaurant because they know restaurants are like Yes, that is a great analogy. <laughs> and it's so like, it doesn't mean that you this means a bad restaurant. It's just I work there. I don't want to eat from there. <laughs> And so, um, la- when we last spoke about uh, about a year and a half ago, um, I asked you if there were any deaths that had affected you greatly, and your answer was kind of like, mm, not really. Like you had some emotional response for some of your grandparents, but nothing like too powerful, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I wonder in the you know in in this past eighteen months, has anything has that answer changed? Mm, again, not really. Um, everybody stayed pretty healthy. I mean, mm-hmm. there've been. A couple of health updates and like extended family members and things mm-hmm. like that, but it's it isn't anybody that I've been emotionally attached to, super close to. Like I'm certainly, I certainly empathize with the things that have happened, but it'll be like that aunt that I haven't seen for ten years or, gotcha, things like that. It's like, and there haven't. I don't think there have been any deaths. In the extended family, not in that time. Yeah, I mean, failing failing health of some grandparents, but nothing that is, mm-hmm. nothing that has been like any day to day shocking difference. Just, you know, advanced age getting mm-hmm. the best of us. Yeah. So, now imagine. So you this past these past two years, especially ICU, um, and also I mean medicine and surge. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just kind of like put your, your face gets put against it, you know? And I wonder, do you think that you've learned, like, do you, do you think that this, this past two years, uh, have, have, or will change the way that you experience the death of somebody that like, you know, a parent, you know, so, some, like one that is unexpected and close. Yeah. Um, and like, what do you think those, what are some of the, like the, the things that you can point to that are, or will be different? I mean, I'm... Emotionally, I'm a bit more of a stoic person mm-hmm. to begin with. That's just the way that I'm wired. And I think being being this close to death, whether through my work, I mean, I see you, med surge units, whatever. And those, those are all things that are going, I think, will help me to cope with those losses when they come. Um, I think for me, the struggle is going to be how do I relate to family members who do not have those shared experiences Mm. because you know they're just like me and that there haven't been any major deaths in the family for a while Mm -hmm. but i'm thinking 
say, my brother or either of my parents. Like, when somebody dies, how are they going to to handle things? Because mm-hmm. it's hard It's hard to really understand how much we've learned yeah. by being in there that we, most people never see. Right. We almost just take it for granted because even our friends, like, we surround ourselves with people that are doing all the same crazy stuff that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we, we talk about, you know, like, oh, I connected with this patient but he died last week or something like that and like that's that's tough but you know we all have those similar experiences and you have no choice but to just put on a fresh perspective for the next patient that you're going to go see like we it is part of our job to not necessarily distance ourselves from it but to process that to some extent mm-hmm. so that we don't carry that over and let that influence the mm-hmm. next patient we go see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That might mean putting off grieving for that patient until the end of the day. That might mean kind of sterilizing the situation and emotionally distancing yourself from it. Like there's a lot of different ways that people will handle things and it's all kind of based on your own temperament and even on the circumstances themselves. But the point of it is we as clinicians, as healthcare employees, I'll even include like the nurses, PAs, aides, everything else, anybody that comes in contact with patients, especially on services like the ICU where a higher percentage of people die, we've had so many more numbers under our belts that we know how to deal with mm-hmm. with death mm-hmm. even even the ones that are emotionally taxing we, we know how to process that the average person that's not in healthcare say like my parents or my brother like this might be the first death that they've experienced in 15 years mm-hmm life stuff might be very different for them. They may not really know how to cope with that. They're still mm-hmm. trying to figure it out. They're kind of like on the level that we were in the first month of third year. We're like, I don't know what to do with this sick person that's in the hospital. It, we, we t- like you said, we take it for granted that we have so many more numbers under our belts mm-hmm. of people that we've emotionally had to process for our own, for our own, health and benefit. And so how do you think you'll, I mean, like, cause I, I know how difficult it is to like kind of go through that myself, but also how do you think that you will assist like the ones you, the, the people that you love and care about through that process? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to revert back to the answer that I gave before of how can I best serve the people mm. that I'm around and just, just make yourself available to whatever the patient needs. Some patients need somebody to some. Excuse me, I'm not even going to refer to patients at this point. People, because these are family members of our patients, mm-hmm. even our patients themselves with terminal diagnoses. Like we'll just say people, but your some people need to be guided, kind of like talk things through step by step. Like what are all the different options? What's going to happen? How do I process this? Others are going to be much more internalized and say, like, I just, just give me my space. I need to just figure this out on my own. Like, everybody's going to do things differently. So you just have to make yourself available to 
what is it that these people want from you and how can you best how can you best serve them in that manner that might be by doing nothing but just being present that might mean leave the room and give them their space mm. that might mean talk them through it go through all the details just like be able to have the emotional intelligence to pick up on what is it that they're looking to get out of this. Something else I was going to mention when talking about this whole like professional story, but this kind of fits in with the when I die, was it was an int- and I'm sorry, this might be a little bit tangential from I love this it. conversation. Keep it going. Go. It's given given the culture of healthcare right now with wellness and especially emotional and behavioral wellness, suicide prevention, things like that. Having my identity rooted not in my profession, but in my relationship with God, in a way becomes the perfect antidote to any sort of suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. Because when I was going through all of those experiences, I found out in hindsight that I had a lot of very close friends that were very concerned gravely concerned for me they said you know they they came to me afterwards and they said like you know you're you're a 20 something year old male you're in healthcare. you have firearms in the home and you're going through a really stressful experience and you're currently living alone because your roommate is off Mm -hmm. doing interviews and away rotations and things like that like i had people come up to me afterwards after the dust had settled and said we were legitimately concerned for your life. And you know, my first reaction to that was like, I'm I'm really touched. I'm like, you guys are great friends and I love and appreciate you for looking out for me like that. But on the other hand, it was like, but why would suicide ever be an option? The stuff that matters hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. The professional stuff is changing, yeah. That that might be a total crapshoot. I don't know. Like this, <laughs> this whole board thing might ruin my professional career. Like that's a very real option. But if my identity is in who I am in God's eyes in that relationship, then why would I ever want to jeopardize that by taking my life? Like that's... I'm not, I'm not trying to like shut that out and say that, that that's not even an option that I'm not considering it, but it was just kind of like a I just kind of stand back and say like, but why would that ever be an option? Mm-hmm. It was it was just interesting that like, you know, we we in medicine are looking for ways to keep our residents and our attendings and our students from harming themselves or prevent burnout and things like that, but you know, for me it was if my identity is in my relationship with God, then the professional stuff isn't going to burn me out. It's not going to make me want to harm myself or kill myself. Like, that just, that becomes a non-issue. That was, it was something that I wasn't expecting to, I didn't expect to come to that sort of a conclusion. And if I heard that story from somebody else of, if somebody else had lived through all those experiences that I did and they were telling me that, like if I'm third-personing my experience, like I wouldn't have necessarily thought about suicide prevention in that story. But it was just kind of an interesting lesson that I learned along the way. I was like, huh, 
pretty good reason to not want to off yourself. Mm-hmm. Like if, yeah. There's, so I, I guess that kind of comes down to, that's tangentially related to the when I die. Because there's, there's one circumstance that I won't come to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not, wouldn't even really consider it. Wasn't, it wasn't something that crossed my mind when I was going through all those struggles and not something that I would ever do in the future. So Eugene, that means if you ever find, if you ever see a suicide note written by me and there are two bullet holes in the back of my head, it was a setup. It wasn't me. Fair enough. I will keep that in mind. Um, Somebody wanted me dead. I guess with that, how do you how do you finish that final prompt after I die? <laughs> after I die. Um. Hopefully the things that I did in this life will have an impact on somebody. Whether whether that's having a family, as we discussed, or not. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, whether that's the patients that I've treated that I've kept alive for a little bit longer. The church family or friend family that are around in all the different places in the country that I've been. Hopefully there is... Hopefully, hopefully I've touched some lives and some people are doing things differently because of me. It was, I, I had a, there was a nice moment of, I was visiting with some college friends. I had them all come back to my apartment in Pennsylvania for kind of like one last get together before I moved out of state because, you know, when I moved out of state to Florida, there were the intentions of I'm coming back to Pennsylvania in a couple of years, but this time it's different because there's really nothing bringing me back to Pennsylvania. There's, mm-hmm. There isn't any like family hub that's in Pennsylvania anymore to come back to. My brother and his wife are in another state mm-hmm. nearby, but still different place. My parents are no longer in Pennsylvania. Like There's nothing really to come back to some later time. So like this this time it felt a little bit more permanent, and I wanted to bring everybody over, have one one good laugh, cry with everybody before I go my separate ways. And one of the things that they did was they towards the end of the night the one one of my friends said, "Can we, Scott? Can we pray for you before you go?" I was like, "Yeah, let's let's do that." And you know when they were they were praying for me maybe like four or five of the guys spoke up and said a few words and it just kind of struck me of things that were seemingly inconsequential to me, things that I didn't even really give a second thought to were kind of life, not not life changing, but were much, much more significant for these people. Mm-hmm. Like one, one couple um, where I, I, I think at the time they were just recently married. They were living in the same city as I was working in, maybe like a few blocks from where I used to live, but it was in a not-so-nice area. And I think the wife's car battery had died or something like that. She needed a jump. And I was just like, yeah, you, you're like a mile away from where I work. I can come down like a couple hours early and help you get all that car stuff settled out. And... Like, I didn't even really think much else of it, but here we are, like, eight years later, and <laughs> she was she was just saying, like, like they, the couple were, 
you know, I was roommates with the guy, and then they got married after college, and he was praying for me, and he was just saying, like, he's, he's the per Scott is the kind of person that will drop everything to help somebody out. It doesn't matter the distance or the task that needs to be done. He will, we're just so, like, you know, he's praying. He's like, God, we thank you so much that we have someone in our life that is willing to be of that kind of service to us. And, you know, to me, it was just like, yeah, they need, they were, they were close to where I worked. <laughs> what, it doesn't matter to me. I'll come down a couple hours early. I'll help you out. Mm-hmm. And to them, it was like this big thing. It was just like, it was, I was very touched with that. So hopefully in the, in the after I die, you know, I, I hope that I've touched some lives in similar ways to that. The things that, the things that I'm doing in the everyday, I hope it has some lasting emotional and physical changes in the people that I interact with. Hopefully that was true of our med school friends in the last four years, and hopefully that'll be true for all the friends and family in the future, too. And I can't think of a better note to end on, because that is, I think, a very true... I mean, that's true just just from like any physician it's really hard to underestimate how much of an impact we have with our patients, especially yeah. during those critical moments of, of life or death or, or delivering terrible or, or life-changing news. But also, Especially I, when you go from that to the next patient who's non-compliant with their meds and <laughs> nothing you say is going to change that. Exactly. We remember that second conversation a lot more than that first. Exactly. <laughs> and I also know that you, you Scott, like this, just, just kind of like keeping tabs of you during the saga, you know, because this, this was all happening... A lot of the time, like when Mackenzie was pregnant, when we had her, when we had, and so like I just you guys had your own set of challenges. We, we had our own wacky <laughs> thing going on, but it was you know it was very important for me just to like be like, what's Scott doing? How's Scott? Because I know Scott's going through some crazy stuff right now. <laughs> but it's you know, and hearing hearing this, and also hearing your perspective on it, you know, granted on the other side of it, um, with with the good news in hand, but it's also you know ha- just you know keep in touch with you was really well, I, for me it was just like oh wow this is really you know it was important to me and 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 being on the other side of this and also knowing that you're moving and you know like like we were saying with folks with graduation is like I don't know when I'll see you next you know in yeah. person it's gonna be a, it might be a very long time and so like just to sort of like kind of put a cap on this like wacky saga of both of our lives you know right. just to be able to sit down I think this you know and I think that those sentiments of just like how much like you have a, can affect all these other people around you and how cool it would be just be to know like you know you did it you yeah. did some stuff you it's, did some stuff while you were here it's kind of like if this were a TV show this would be like the season finale mm. and we're we're ramping up for a lot of changes next season exactly there have been a lot of cast members that the audience has fallen in love with but it's it's time to say our goodbyes it's time to add some new cast members mm. and see where the show goes next season I agree and uh, I want to give you the floor once again to talk to the audience, to maybe yourself in a dozen years when we wrap, when we are able to, you know, get back together in person <laughs> again. Um, and who knows, maybe your your child is listening, or your partner, or who somebody, or somebody who is affected by you uh, positively in the clinic, you know, uh, for whatever reason. Not looking for some kind of dirt on me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the floor is yours. Uh, yeah, whatever you want to say to them. Yeah, I mean, I've I've just been grateful for this whole medical school experience. I thank God that I got through 
all of this stuff. It certainly wasn't by my own strength. <laughs> As we talked about, that was that was a long time ago that I stopped running on my own strength. I would have given up ten times over in the last four years, but by the grace of God, he put the right people in my life to say, keep going. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be some kind of a supernatural thing to say that God is the one working through it. I mean, I wholeheartedly believe that God was speaking through my friends and my family and advisors and everybody else along the way that has has helped me. So I, I thank God and I thank the people that have been in my life for helping me to get through it because that's it, it wasn't a solo act. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if I if I can just charge the audience with love God and love others, it's the two greatest commandments that are in the Bible. So if if you forget about either of those things, then 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 we're lost. That about that about sums it up. I dig it, Scott. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Scott H on death once again. Now let's go burn this couch. Let's burn this couch. <laughs> Give me up. Kim and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am before I die, I want when I die, I want and after I die, I want. This week we sit down with Scott H. Scott is a 28 year old third year medical student, second lieutenant in the United States Army, and follower of Jesus Christ. Additionally, Scott serves as the man behind the curtain. For this podcast, editing and adjusting the recordings in post-production. During this heady conversation, we discuss a rational belief in faith, his service-based approach to selecting his church communities, and why you shouldn't bury gold. Before we talk more about Scott, I want to talk about my long-form Sunday's posts. These are my weekly reflections on life, medical school, and uh, everything in between. So, uh... This past, or so about two weeks ago, I posted on Holes of the Heart, or Ode to a Garbage Cat. This week, I mourned the loss of a new old friend. May his garbage be piled high, his bathtub's always wet, and his meows always droning. I love you, Frank. Then, the following week, this most recent Sunday, I posted on Family Reunions, or Transitions to Fall. Uh, this week, I quickly reflected on a quick to, on a trip to New York City. I wrote this post on my phone, and boy, does it show! Anyway, you can go read all those pod, You can read all those long forms in their full length, or you can listen to them on the uh, 
on the on the podcast feed um, or you can go to the website and look up all of the interviews whatever you want to do however you want to consume this this content uh, is up to you anyway more back to Scott Scott is a sinner saved by the grace of God alone and a follower of Jesus before Scott dies he wants to share the gift of the gospel to all who will hear it when Scott dies he wants to hear well done good and faithful servant. And after Scott dies, he wants others to not feel bad. So this was a really cool interview. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Scott edits the podcast for us. And uh, it's a really, he, he does a great job. He, there have been a couple of times where uh, I give him a recording. And I'm like, dude, good luck. And he manages to clean it up very well. And he does it uh, out of the, the goodness of his, his lovely heart. Uh, he's very interested in sound design. He's, he's a musician as well. We don't really get into that in the podcast uh, we we do uh, kind of like through through the, his uh, his um, this his uh, decision to play in uh, bands at churches, and uh, it's uh, this is a really great conversation. He he is uh, has like such a knowledge of the Christian faith and of Scripture, and it's uh, he has such a, a rational approach to things. It's really interesting. So uh, there there are there are like kind of two ways you can I, I would like to recommend interviews that kind of go along with this this one. Um, there are interviews that sort of have that that incredibly rational approach to uh, the the responses and and the, their underlying philosophies, and then there are those who who share Scott's uh, like style, I guess, um, like his his faith in in the way that they are um, very true followers of Jesus, and they in their true and they're they're very uh, faithful Christians, and so let's talk first about that uh, that first group. The, uh, the the very rational folks. So uh, uh, you can, if you listen to uh, uh, Manny Singh's uh, interview, uh, that was posted on August 6th, 2017. Um, additionally, you can find Ali Musa Jaffer's uh, interview that was posted on March 3rd, 2016. And these are two fellows that also have that very rational approach. They're very uh, Ali, uh, Ali is uh, Ali Musa. He is a, a Muslim and he has a, uh, like almost the same like depth of, of like like academic uh really rational knowledge of 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 his of his their their respective uh their 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 tomes their 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 books of worship and uh manny um he has like sort of like a a um neo-humanist uh trans transhuman uh, philosophy that's that's very interesting and they all, all three of them are they're kind of like in that brain camp they're like super uh thinking like really in the brain and uh on uh in on the second path the uh the the, the fellow christians that kind of share his faith and uh they they i think all of them maybe all of them uh have uh attended aletheia with him in um in tampa florida where we went to school and did our first two years of uh, medical school, and so the first one that I want to mention is Jarrell Mayer. Mayer, I messed it up when I when I interviewed him too. Jarrell Mayer, and that's he, that was posted on uh, April seventh, twenty sixteen, and uh, there's also Meg Scott. That one was posted on February sixteenth, twenty seventeen, and AJ Thurston posted on March thirty first, twenty seventeen. Those are really great podcasts to check out if, uh, if what Scott says resonates with you. It's a really, really good time. So 
Anyway, I'm not going to talk anymore. I've probably been talking for a while. I hope that you are rip-roaring and ready to go to listen to Scott uh, talk about death through the four prompts. Um, I hope you got your water ready. And uh, I messed up that outro. So here is Scott's responses on death. It is September 26th, 2017, and I'm sitting here in Macungi in in Scott's apartment. And we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Yeah. So Thanks Scott, for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. What are the four prompts? So the four prompts are I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. Excellent. And how do you finish that first prompt, I am? Um, it probably... The best way I can answer that is to identify with where I am in terms of my relationship with God, since that's mm-hmm. that relationship defines every other aspect of my life. Mm-hmm. So if I take on a couple of these notes here, mm-hmm. um, I'd say that I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God alone. And everything else is secondary to that. And so, what, so, so there are two parts of that, that there's the part that you're a sinner mm-hmm. and then there's the part of grace that saves you. Yeah. Um, so let's talk, let's talk about, let's talk, which one do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about, yeah, well, let's just go in order. Let's go in order. So what does it mean to be a sinner? So, um, being a sinner, if, if we look at a biblical definition of it and we can, we can talk about the validity of the authority of what the Bible says later, but mm-hmm. just for the, the sake of this worldview, um, the Bible says that sin is lawlessness. I believe that's in First oh. John, somewhere like that. Really? But the idea is that, you know, God has his standards, his way of saying, this is how a person should live. This is how my character is, and this is how I created you as men and women to be. Mm-hmm. And to act and act or think or say anything that's in any way contradictory to that of um, disregarding what his characteristics are, that mm-hmm. is sin. Mm-hmm. So, and so sin how, is kind of a deviation, a lawlessness from the way things should be. So then if that's the definition of a sin or a sinner, uh, then how are you a sinner? So anything that I do that is not in accordance with the way God wants me to live, that's, that's a sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a very in a very concise way we can look at we can look at the 10 commandments things like do not murder do not steal do not commit adultery now these are all pretty egregious things and i'd say most of us could say oh i didn't haven't really done any of these things mm-hmm. but if we if we look at some of the words that jesus spoke and saying how these things are really meant to be interpreted and it's not just so much the outward actions of things but the inner motives and desires of our hearts so I think it's in Matthew 5 or 6, somewhere in his Sermon on the Mount, he, he's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, and he's saying, it's written in your law, do not, do not murder, mm-hmm. but if you so much as hate your brother or your sister in your heart, you have essentially committed murder. So it's sort of taking that outward action and bringing it back to all the way, all the way to the motive that even if you so much as hate somebody— you're guilty of it. Mm -hmm. Or another example, he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But if you even look at somebody with lust in your heart, you might as well have committed adultery with that person. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like when we look, when we look at God's law in scripture, the way that Jesus was interpreting it, 
then it's he's setting the bar so high that nobody is perfect. Mm-hmm. And another passage that this is brought up in Scripture is in uh, Romans chapter 3. So Romans is a book that the Apostle Paul wrote sort of like as a letter to the church in Rome. Mm-hmm. Hence we call it Romans. I did not know that. And um, what, what he's talking about in the third chapter of this book is how pretty much everybody on earth is guilty of sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's verse 23 that he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can read the first two, two chapters and then in chapter three up to that point, And it's, it's basically just going through of saying, here's all the ways that nobody meets that mark. <laughs> like we've, we've all, we all know what's right in our hearts, what we should do. Mm-hmm. But we can all think back to some time that we did not obey that conscience. Um, Romans chapter 1 describes it as like God's law is imprinted on our hearts, but we have chosen not to obey that. Mm. And so, uh, and when, as you describe this, I'm, I get this uh, like this like like kind of counter like feeling of like, well, that seems really harsh. Like that's like a yeah, pretty pretty strong bar to uh, raise, and then say you have to meet this. But then I think that leads us to the next point of, of being saved by God's grace. Is that yes. correct? And it's it's sort of the idea of if you're not guilty of something, why would you need a savior? Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things that we can't understand the message of salvation as Christians believe it. If we don't already understand our grave need of a savior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So being saved by God's grace alone, it's so let me take it one step further of being a sinner. So not only am I a sinner, but there's also nothing that I can do to make myself not a sinner. I can't try harder to not sin. Because once once you're guilty, you're guilty of something. It's sort of like you can if you were if you broke the law, you can say, okay, well, I'm not going to break it again. But you've already broken the law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, sort of like that idea, like you can't solve a problem at the level at which it was created. You need to go a little like a, a, like a meta step higher. Right. It's it's kind of like if everybody was stuck in a pit and there's no way to get out of it. It's like you. You can't just try harder to get out of this pit. If it's a hundred feet high and it's a glass wall, you're you're not getting out. Mm-hmm. You need mm-hmm. somebody from outside to rescue you. Mm-hmm. And in that case, the only one that's did not break this law, the only one that is perfect, is somebody that is God, mm-hmm. and that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Somebody that who is God, but put aside all all deity, all authority of being God to take on flesh, to become human, live this life as a person with all the same struggles and temptations and difficulties that we have here, mm-hmm. just going through everyday life and not screwing up, mm-hmm. being perfect. And then ultimately taking on the, the price of what our sins, what the punishment of our sins would be which, again, Scripture would say is the punishment for sin is death, which, again, sounds really, really harsh. (laughs) It's kind of like not only is this law something that we can't keep, but it's also something with a very grave punishment. It's death and separation from God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But 
Now, if we put the, that on the converse of what if we had somebody who didn't break that law, but yet took that punishment, it's, it's sort of like somebody, it's kind of like, let's say you owed a lot of money for medical school mm-hmm. and so much money that you couldn't ever pay it back. But somebody who had the money then came in and said, Eugene, I got this. I'm covering you because I have the money and I can give it to you on your behalf to pay this debt. Mm-hmm. You go debt free even though the money wasn't yours. So it's, that's kind of like a, it's a very basic um, understanding of the Christian idea of salvation from sin. I see. And so let's, and like, so I think it's uh, very, very obvious that you are a, you're well-read and like, I would say scholarly in your, in your study of Christian, of the Christian mm-hmm. faith and your faith. Um, I, I want to understand a little bit more about, like the Scott, like the Scott story of his faith. Like, how okay. did you, how, how did your, I mean, imagine that it was, this is something that has ha, uh, been uh, with you for a long time, uh, but it also, your, your faith has gone through various like uh, trials and, and challenges and, and uh, different phases. Like what, tell me sure. a little bit about it. So I think in summary, like if I were to describe it in one sentence, I cannot rationally understand the way the world works in any other worldview but Christianity. Christianity makes the most sense to my logical brain. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds kind of weird because the stereotypical Christian is somebody who's very fanatical, very emotional, and if you try to get into an argument, they'll just sort of throw scripture at you and you say, well, what if I don't think that's the authority by which I live my life? I mean suppose a non-Christian or an atheist around there and say, well, I don't believe the, what the Bible says. I don't think it's 100% true. So what do you say to that? And then other Christians would just sort of throw their hands up and be like, well, you have to believe that. Mm-hmm. But um, there was an article that I read some time ago, which actually you want to you know more about how like my my life story, how that's been a part of it. So we'll start there. But there is an article that I do want to sort of briefly summarize in a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in a family, um, fortunately, that my immediate family were all Christians as well. Uh, My parents, my mom and my dad were both Christians, and we, my brother and I went to church all through growing up. Um, I'd say I came to an understanding of what it means to be a Christian and making the decision to be a Christian myself when I was, I was probably about eight years old at the time. Um, I remember being in church one day and the person in the Sunday school class was teaching pretty much the same things that we had just talked about, about salvation and about our need for it, about how, how everybody is guilty, everybody is a sinner, but God has provided a way to pay for that sin. And it kind of struck me of, that includes me. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not perfect, and I know I need a Savior. So whatever this Christianity thing is, I want to be on board with it. <laughs> and so. did you, uh, like, what, um, what, like, branch or, like, flavor of Christianity were you raised under? And uh, what do you, would, would, like, what would you say you practice now? Good question. Um, so I was raised in a church that would be non-denominational, which mm-hmm. among Christian circles, we just joke that that's just Baptist with a cool name. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it was it was non-denominational in that we didn't have any affiliation with any sort of larger denominational branch, be that mm. Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Catholic, anything like that. But which meant that the church itself was free to um, interpret scripture the way that we believed was right. Mm-hmm. And as a side note, that's that's kind of where a lot of the different denominations come from. It's if there's two things that sort of make Christian denominations slightly different from one another, it would be one of two things, either tradition, just how history itself has sort of played out in mm-hmm. how different groups of people have done things, as well as biblical interpretation. Um, things that are not really black and white issues of like, if you don't believe this the way that it says in Scripture, then you're not a Christian. Like, those are black and white issues. But there's some things in Scripture that are a little bit more ambiguous, things that we don't really understand, things that had a lot of historical context to them that we as 21st century American readers don't understand the way that a 1st century uh, Middle Eastern person would understand it. Mm -hmm. So there's... There's some differences in interpretation, and in some of those things, those will make up for different denominations. But like I said, those are they're all issues that are, for the most part, pretty tertiary. Like, by virtue of saying that you're a Christian, you, you hold to the belief that everybody is a sinner, everybody is in need of God's forgiveness of sins, and that there's nothing that you personally can do about it to be forgiven, except cry out and say, God, I need you, please forgive me. Um, so that being said, I've, I've jumped, into a, jumped to a number of different denominations throughout my life, and really the only rubric I look at when deciding what church to go to is like one of two things. It's, is it somewhere that is preaching God's word in truth, or are they using the words of it to distort the truth and teach something that they would rather teach? Are they misinterpreting something, mm-hmm. pulling things out of context? Or and how how would you know that? Like, what is your that if that's your rubric? Um, if they are um, actually like truly conveying a message versus like uh, using utilizing it as like sort of cover or a okay. flag? Like, how how do you make that discernment? Well, it's. It's kind of like if you took a scientific paper and tried to make it say something that it was never really meant to say. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we can we can look at the methods and the way that a that a scientific paper was set up, and you know, figure out what the what the ramifications are for this patient that is sitting right in front of me. Does this paper apply to that person? Mm-hmm. And you can certainly imagine a less than ideal clinician pulling a paper that is drawing other conclusions about a patient population that does not include this person that is in your exam room mm-hmm. and then saying, but, Oh, I'm going to cite this paper and say that it says this, therefore patient a should do that. Mm-hmm. And you know, another clinician might say, um, no, that paper didn't even really say that. I mean, one, it doesn't agree with anything else that's in scientific literature. It's contradicting it. Um, two, just by reading the paper itself, it's simply not about the person that's in front of me. So similar, similar analogies to what you would find in scripture is, 
you know, we would look at the context of that passage of whatever point is trying to be made, mm-hmm. whatever this preacher is trying to use the verse, this passage, whatever for, mm-hmm. and you see, is this, is this what the author of this book of the Bible was actually trying to say? So we were talking about Romans before it was written by Paul to the church that was in Rome within the first century. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's really difficult as a 21st century American to be reading that and not sort of put your own biases, put your own influences on it. And we can, we can sort of, you know, take the words out of context and make it say things that we don't want it to say. Mm-hmm. And I've been to churches where, you know, they'll, they'll be preaching about something and you, you, your ears sort of perk up and you say, that, that doesn't quite sound like what the rest of the Bible would be teaching. Like I remember at one point hearing a, hearing a sermon of somebody trying to use scriptural references to show that one must work, do good works to make it into heaven. And that sort of rubs you the wrong way and says, wait a minute, if this was all about grace, if this was everything that God was doing, not about what I was doing, then something's wrong here. Mm -hmm. So if in that instance, that was a church, that was a group that I didn't necessarily want to be a part of Mm -hmm. because I felt that they were not interpreting scripture in the way that scripture was meant to be interpreted. So that's, that's kind of how I go about that one. Mm-hmm. Um, getting back to the original question, um, two criteria for looking for a church. One of them is, you know, integrity with preaching about what's in Scripture. The other is, is this, assuming that that first point is met, is this a place that my gifts, my abilities can be used to serve the other people that are at this church? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm a musician. I love music. I love playing music. And it's it's an area that I can use to serve the body of believers with the worship team, people that play music with the congregation, the people in the church singing along with it to praise God. So it's it's a skill set that, you know, sometimes I'll be looking for ways that I can I can help out the people that are there because it's sort of like there's this Scott shaped hole in this church. (laughs) And I'd say, Ooh, I can do this. I can, Mm -hmm. I can help the other people that are here with the abilities that I have. If it was something like we need childcare, we need people to teach our kids and do things, take care of them during the Sunday services. I'd say that's really not my skill set. I'm not so great with kids. Mm -hmm. So being useful is important to you. And if, if they'd say like, oh, we don't really need any other musicians for us, then, you know, it's not a reason not to go to that church, but maybe I might start looking around and see if there's another church that all things being equal, if I can do something to help out the people that are there, then that would be a better fit for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's, those are kind of the same rubric. That's sort of the same rubric that I used when I moved up to Pennsylvania is that I was looking for a church that was teaching God's word. And I found a couple that were along those lines. Um, I knew a few people in the area, so I was able to check out churches that they knew were biblically pretty solid. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it was just a question of, okay, well, what what body of believers am I best going to be able to serve? And I ended up going to a church in Cooperstown, Coopersburg. Coopersburg. Coopersburg, my home, my town now. Just uh, just a stone's throw from your place. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So, and that one's actually a Presbyterian church. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd gone to a Presbyterian church previously, back when I lived in the city, maybe about four years ago. Uh, that that church had a very different feel to it, um, just in the way that they ordered the service. But I mean, I've been to throughout my life. I've regularly attended Baptist churches, a few different Baptist churches, and Assemblies of God Church. That was interesting. They're very charismatic, very uh, hands in the air, and mm-hmm. looks like a party. But uh, they were they were a good church. Um, a couple non denominational churches, and you know. Like I said, the only criteria that I don't really put too much too much weight on the denomination itself because I've seen both good churches and not so good churches of all denominations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's more about what is that individual church teaching and preaching? What do they hold to be true? And is it somewhere that I can use my abilities to get plugged in? And that and that uh, that feeling of like also like you you uh, you go to that community and you are able to, uh, receive things and to give things. Like, it's nice to have like a, a transference of, of skills and and everything, just not just being like, I'm an observer essentially. Right. Yeah. And even, even to an outside person that thinks this whole religion thing is bunk and we're all just sort of drinking the Kool-Aid and doing something crazy. At least you can appreciate having a group of people together that are you know, empowering each other and whether it's through encouragement or just openly talking about the the tough things that are going on in life. I mean, it doesn't take a religious person to realize how useful that is to anybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely something that we've we've lost as like a an overall society and culture. It's just mm-hmm. like those places to like really dig at things. Right. And so you are a sinner uh, sa- that was saved by the grace of God. Is that the wording that you yeah. use? Yeah. The only thing I would change to that is saved by the grace of God alone. And that just sort of gets at the idea of there's nothing that I can do. It's all about what God has done mm-hmm. that saves me. It's going back to the analogy of being in a hundred foot deep glass pit of there's nothing I can do to get myself out. Mm-hmm. I can try to climb. There might be other people in the pit with me, and some of them might be able to jump a little bit higher than others. The analogy being some people are more righteous, less lawbreakers than others, but we've all broken the law at least at one point. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like a chain. It, if you even break one chain link, the chain's kind of useless. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if it's broken in one place or many. It's an equally useless chain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... It's it's about God's grace alone because it is only by his perfect sacrifice of Jesus living a perfect life and then paying for my sins by dying on the cross and then coming back from the dead that has paid the debt of my sin. And what else are you? Um I mean that's that's kind of the big one and everything else is secondary to that. I mean, I mean, I'd say I'm a follower of Jesus. Um, that's, that's just kind of because I don't really like the term Christian. It has so many biases uh, on that to the general population. Mm-hmm. You kind of think of this like white supremacist person that hates any non-white person and claims to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. And like all, all these other stereotypes that people have, 
or as somebody who's a generally well well like well to do person means well but is a bit delusional like there's so many so many biases in there amongst what is a christian that i think that the easiest way for me to describe it is i'm a follower of jesus mm-hmm. if jesus taught it i believe it mm-hmm. which and, and that's a that's a, a self description that i've heard uh from various uh other interviewees, yeah, like that's they they try, I mean, try to have avoid. like Jarrell and AJ and uh, yeah. Meg and a few other people on here that have used the same description. I'm sure, yeah, like really tried to shy away from that term because it is unfortunate the 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 connotations that are associated with the term Christian, um, and so kind of like side skirting that a little bit by by, saying, by like getting to the sources. Like, no, I'm follow, I follow Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah, and I mean a really good a really good um, rationale for that is I mean the way I like to describe it is. There was this guy, Jesus, that lived a couple thousand years ago, and you don't need the Bible to necessarily believe that. There's even the most staunch atheist historians of that time would say, yeah, the historical evidence would say that Jesus was an actual person. Mm-hmm. Probably was real. Probably really cool dude. Like, at the very least, you can say, like, he probably existed, and he was probably very charismatic and influential yeah. at the very least. He was, he was somebody that made some headlines in his day. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, some of the headlines were really good things. I mean, there were things like, love your neighbor, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and all these other things that are, make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside of like, yeah, let's be a really nice community. Let's all be good to each other. But he also made some really radical claims. And the most you know, eyebrow-raising one of them is saying that he is the son of God. Mm. And... It's kind of like would would a good person really say that? Say something that would be well, it it's kind of like he's he's making these claims that he is the son of God. Mm-hmm. And there's there's kind of a few different ways that you can interpret that. He could either if he wasn't the son of God and he knew he wasn't the son of God, then he'd be lying. He'd be he would be actively trying to deceive people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would be like if I claim to be the president, but I'm not the, really the president. But let's suppose the people that I was with might have actually believed it. There's some extortion going on there. So that's one possibility. Or he may not have been God, and he may have actually believed that he was God. And that's kind of the definition of a crazy person. Mm-hmm. Somebody that you would see in the inpatient psychiatric world thinking a that he is delusion. Jesus. Yes. <laughs> He's delusional. Or there's the remote possibility that he is the son of God and he and he knows it. Mm-hmm. And that makes him God. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, there's a, an A.C.S. Lewis quote from Mere Christianity really sums it up well. Um, C.S. Lewis is a really great author. He was you know, around 1940s, 50s-ish. Most well-known for the, uh, uh, like, uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe yes. series, uh, Narnia. The Chronicles books. of Narnia, and mm-hmm. also a really good friend of uh, Tolkien, oh, yeah, Lord of the Rings. That, yeah. So, you know, they, they're kind of all along the same authors, but he describes that same, same point this way. This is in Mere Christianity, one of my favorite books by him. Um, in describing Jesus, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Mm-hmm. You must not make your choice. Uh, wait, yeah, you must, uh, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for being a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Mm. And I, I think that's just, an, it's a really powerful way of summing up the commonly held notion that Jesus was a great moral teacher, said a lot of really great things, but he wasn't God. And it's kind of like, well, no, he was either God or crazy or evil. Just looking at what his claims were, there's really no other way around that. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, uh, like how do you get how do you, how does somebody get to the title of grandmaster? And it's like they somebody else calls them grandmaster and it mm-hmm. sticks. And it's like you don't re- like unless you are like undisputedly a grandmaster, you don't get to call yourself a grandmaster. Otherwise, you're just an asshole. <laughs> like you like you have to like you some other people have to be like, yeah, this dude's a grandmaster. It's like let's mm-hmm. let's let's be real here. Or you you are so undeniably like the the founder of of something like that that you get to call yourself a grandmaster. Yeah. Along those lines, at least. Uh, so uh, how do you finish the next prompt? Uh, before I die, I want. Um, before I die, I, I really want to see other people come to know the same truth that is in the true identity of Jesus, in that he is the son of God and that he came here to pay the price for the sins that we all have. Um, because it... Just as like, um, let's see, what am I trying to say here? Um, there are going to be those who don't believe that Jesus is who he says he was or says, look, I appreciate it. You're, I appreciate what you're trying to do for me, what you're trying to teach me here, but it's, it's not for me. I want to live my life in other ways. And I mean, the, the outcome for that is it's not good. I mean, it's kind of like, using the analogy of if salvation is a gift, it's something that God has done and is saying, here, this is yours if you want it, and then willfully saying, no thanks, I'll try to make it on my own. And the result of that is we pay the punishment for our sins, which is eternal death and separation from God. Mm-hmm. Which sounds like a really harsh thing, but it's it's kind of like if... If it weren't the case, if God were just sort of like, oh, well, I can let that slide, it would be, <clears throat> excuse me, it would be contradictory to what his nature is to being a perfect and holy God. It mm-hmm. would compromise that. I mean, it's sort of like if you were, if you set a law, but then subjective, or better example, let's say you designed a program, designed like a video game or something, but then created a character in that game and then decided to not play by the rules of that game. Mm-hmm. And so like, well, why'd you even make the rule in the first place? <laughs> you're, you're sort of compromising your role as the creator and maker of that system. Mm-hmm. And it's not a perfect analogy, but it, 
it gets the point it gets, across. It gets the point across for God's holiness. Mm-hmm. And to say that, um, like, it can, it, it can be very easy to say that that's unfair, that God would do that. But to be honest, the fair thing would be that we are sinners and we're guilty of the, <clears throat> guilty of the ramifications of that. Mm-hmm. which is separation from God. So, it is purely but, by grace that even any of us are exempt, forgiven, put on a different track than that. Mm-hmm. But uh, why, so then, like, all of that said, mm-hmm. uh, why is it important for you to, uh, that other people um, share in that faith? Well, because if they don't, then that terrible outcome is what's going to happen. So before I die, I want to be able to share this good news that there's a way out of this, mm-hmm. that there's something that we can, we can do, which is ironic. It's the very act of doing nothing, of saying, I can't save myself from this, and turning to God and saying, God, save me, mm-hmm. that, you are, that you're saying that I need to be forgiven of this. I want to be in God's presence when this, this life is over. So, I mean, that, that gift is open to anybody. Anybody can take, take a hold of that. Mm-hmm. And I want, before I die, I want to share that with everybody. Mm-hmm. To use another analogy, it's sort of like, imagine there was a disease that had a 100% incidence and a 100% mortality, but you had a vaccine that would cure it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't give it before a certain time, then that person's fate is set. Wouldn't you do everything you could to tell people about this and say, Hey, there's a cure for this. Take mm-hmm. it. It's available to you. Well, then here, here's my question is, uh, initially you said more. And then on the second time around, you were talking about everybody. What, which, which is that, are you leaning more towards the more, which is like, what, like if you have one more person, uh, like joining the Christian faith as as sinners saved by the grace of God, mm-hmm. that that's pretty attainable. But if you're talking about everybody, that is, I think, a much more lofty and for sure and difficult goal to ever see happen. Mm-hmm. Um, which which one are you leaning towards? I mean, it's it's sort of like the difference between what is attainable and what can we strive to attain. Mm-hmm the difference between ideal versus practical. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, we can try to share this message with everybody that we know. Like if I meet somebody like, Hey, have you heard this really great news? Mm-hmm. But there's going to be people that say, that's nice, Scott, but I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. Thank you. But so you're, you may not necessarily be able to reach everybody with that, but you can at least do your part to make that available to them, to let them know that this is something that exists, that they can look into, something that they can wrestle among amongst their own rationale, their understanding of how the world works, and look and see if these claims are true. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so I guess to answer your of... question, it's sort of like we are striving for everybody, mm-hmm. but we know not everybody is going to take a hold of it. But we're sure going to show it. We're we're sure going to expose as many people as we can to it. Mm-hmm. Like uh, short of uh, actively stabbing everybody with a vaccine, you're going to make it available at least. Like put it on the table and be like, you know, it's right there. Mm-hmm. You don't have to. I'm not going to 
I'm not going to just do it, but it's right. all up to you. Yeah. I mean, and you, you can't exactly vaccinate somebody against their will. I mean, you, you can. It has been done. It's just not <laughs> a great... Uh, it's, not, it's not great. Right. It's, it's not medically indicated or, uh, you know, desired. Mm-hmm. But from, and, and from a Christian sense, it's, that's, that's sort of like where you get the turn and burn kind of people that are like picketing with signs of like, you must be saved or else blah, 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 blah. And it's like, it, yeah, you're reaching a wide number of people because anybody that sees or hears you is getting the message. But is it really doing much to convince people of their need of a savior? And more specifically, why would Jesus be the one to save them? Mm-hmm. It's not really, you're not really fulfilling that that goal. It's not the best marketing. Mm-mm. What else do you want before you die? That's That's really about it. I mean, if I would love to see all the people that I've met come join me in this because, you know, I really love the people that I've met. I love my classmates. I love my friends, my family. And I would love to spend eternity with them because that'd be awesome. I mean, this, in comparison, this life is pretty short. And if the real things that matter are what happens after we all die, then, you know, I want to make sure that the in this life, we make the choices, make the decision of, okay, this is where I'm going to put my faith. This is where I'm going to put my trust because that is the one thing that's going to determine, are you going to be living in the presence of God for the rest of eternity or are you going to be separated from him in this place that we call hell? So let's talk about when you die. Okay. How do you finish that prompt, when I die, I want? Um, I would... I'd quote Matthew 25, which is a parable that Jesus taught. And I'd say, when I die, I want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So the, the parable or the parable that Jesus was telling, um, he would tell a lot of parables to express some of the teachings or ideas that he wanted to express that people wouldn't have necessarily understood if he just sort of explained it out forthright. So he would use sort of like an analogy to explain mm-hmm. it. And oh, which parable was this anyway? Um, oh, right. So the, the way the story goes is there's this master that has three servants, or you could think of it as like a boss and three employees. And this boss has, let's say, $1 million. And he says, I'm going to be going away to do some work in a foreign country. And I need you three employees to cover, I need you to use this money to invest it, to make the best of it. So, I mean, the math isn't going to come out quite right, but it's like, I'm going to give you, person number one, I'm going to give you $100,000, or I'm going to give you 10000 or yeah, I'm going to give you $1 million, give person number two 500000 person number three, I'm going to give you 100000 the, the way the text itself goes, it's 10 talents, 5 talents, 1 talent. A mm-hmm. talent being a unit of currency at the time. Mm-hmm. A pretty sizable amount, too. I think it was, it was equal to, I, I think it was like the majority of a person's wages for the year. Mm-hmm. So no small chunk of change. Mm-hmm. And the master is saying, 
Use it. Do business until I return. I'm going to hold you accountable for it. So the master goes away. He comes back after a time, and he calls his three servants back in and says, "What did you? How did you do? How did you use the the talents that I gave you?" And the one who was given ten ten talents, or in our case, one million dollars, he says, "I, you gave me one million dollars." I was able to, in business, make one million more. So here's two million back. And he says, well done, servant. You've done great work. Be in charge of these 10 cities or whatever that I'm now in control of. Mm-hmm. Like these, given more responsibility. He po- goes to the next person who was given 500,000. He says, how did you do? And he says, I was able to take your 500,000 and make an additional 500,000. So here's one million back. He says, well done. You're going to be in control of five cities or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And the third person, he says, how did you do? And he, the servant says to him, I know that you're a shrewd business person. You're collecting things with which you did not invest. You're, you're very frugal with your funds, and I didn't want to lose it. So I buried it in the ground for safekeeping here. Here's your $100,000 back. And conversely, he says, you're a wicked servant. Your own words condemn you. You knew that I collected that which I didn't sow. You know that I'm a shrewd business person. Why didn't you at least put it in a bank somewhere so that I could collect interest? And he takes away the $100,000 and gives it to the one that was given $1 million, and that servant was cast out. So the way that analogy plays over into what I want when I die is the talent or the gift that I've been given is an understanding of what must a person do to be saved. The message of a person needs to be forgiven of their sins, call out to God because they are a sinner and in need of forgiveness. And if I just hold that on to myself, if I just kind of bury that in the ground for safekeeping saying, okay, I've got the message, I understand it, I'm just going to live my life and be at peace with everybody else and not share this, then I'm like that third guy. Mm-hmm. Whereas I could be like the first guy and say, look, I'm going to use this gift as much as I can. I'm going to share this. I'm going to hopefully you know, convince other people that, yeah, this is the truth. And have more have more people join and in the end hear god say to me well done you've used the talents that i gave you you've used the resources that i gave you to accomplish this goal of preaching the good news so when i die hopefully that's that's the end goal that i've convinced at least a few other people that this is true Mm -hmm. and at the very least share it with everybody that i know uh, have you thought about the moment of your passing? About the moment of my passing? Mm, to some degree, I have. I mean, how this, you're, I mean, I'm assuming you're talking about like the circumstances of how I want it to happen, who I want there, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, and and also like your state of mind, like what uh, what would you be doing emotionally, and and like uh, and what would you what would you be feeling as it happened? Mm. I mean, I've thought about it, but I'm 
honestly not too concerned about how it happens or the circumstances, my state of mind. I mean, it's, it's going to happen how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when God decides that my time here is up, I go home. I go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, the, these circumstances are sort of, you know, negligible in the grand scheme of things because I'm spending, the rest the, I'm spending eternity in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. I'm cool with that. Mm-hmm. So whether it's, whether it's something short and abrupt and unexpected or whether it's something that I'm seeing coming from a mile away in my ripe old age, whether there's people around me or if I'm alone, I mean, the end result is the same. Uh, have you been in the presence of a passing? Um, I don't think I have. I've certainly been to funerals and I've seen people after they've passed. Mm-hmm. And through medical school things, seen people that have passed that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But I've not been there in the moment that somebody has passed. Uh, and because that's, that's a weird thing. Like, I, I've been thinking about this a lot for myself personally. Mm-hmm. Is that I'm, I'm your same age, uh, 28, and this was the year that I um, actually saw something pass uh, in front of me. Like, yeah. And the, it was a to- it's just a very different it's just a different thing once you like see it and also as a secondarily uh, if you are um if you are the one that causes the passing like if right. it's an animal or if it's a person like just just being there and and being a part of it is a very it's a weird thing and yeah. and most uh like if you're even if you're talking about like even like 200 300 years ago everybody probably well before puberty would have experienced something like that and like sure it's one thing to be talking about passage in, in the abstract and it's another thing to physically be there mm-hmm. and to, to be, uh, uh, to feel like what, 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 like, what is the room like? Like when, whenever, yeah. when that, when that light goes out and it's a very, uh, it's a very, um, it's a very different thing. And, um, has there been a passage that has affected you greatly? Like a passage of somebody's life? Yes. Um, I mean, I've had, I've had extended family members that have passed mm-hmm. um, and the occasional friend or somebody I knew of roughly my own age, somebody who passed prematurely. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as, as you say that, I can't really think of anybody that I would say like, oh, this really emotionally affected me. I mean, three of my four grandparents have passed. Mm-hmm. They're no longer alive here on this earth. But... um and each of those affected me in different ways, depending on my age. I mean, two of them passed when I was fairly young, somewhere in the like five to nine ish mm-hmm. age. Mm-hmm. So it was really not it. You, you didn't really comprehend the full grasp of what death really is. Mm-hmm. And then the third grandparent passed within the last five years or so, mm-hmm. and that was a very different story because I was old enough to sort of see the ramifications of it and see it coming from a mile away. It was not, it was not an abrupt passing. Mm -hmm. It was something that, you know, we had been anticipating for, you know, at least a good three to five years. The exact moment of it happening was unexpected, but I mean, that's, that's how it is. Mm -hmm. But, um, it's, how did that, how did that more recent one affect you differently? I mean, there was there were some emotions to it. I mean, at first, when I first heard the news that that grandparent had passed, you know, it was something that I didn't 
it didn't really hit me at first. It was just kind of like, oh, it it finally happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, knowing that this person's health was declining for so long, and then, okay, that 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 one event happened now. Mm-hmm. It's like this, my grandmother is no longer alive. Okay. And, I mean, it was sad, but it, I really didn't think much else of it just because the the day-to-day routines of my life didn't really change. Mm-hmm. But, it's not like she was living in the house. With right, right. But, you know, going through the the process of taking the day off from work to travel up to the town that she lived in, mm-hmm. seeing extended family members also come into town, go through the wedding, the memorial service. I mean, it was it was sad, and it mm-hmm. was a chance to process all of those emotions that you sort of put off. But, you know, it the thing about the thing about a funeral from a Protestant Christian perspective is that if this person was forgiven, if this person was a believer in the gospel, the good news, mm-hmm. then you know, we the Bible describes it as we don't grieve as other people grieve mm-hmm. because it's it's this idea that we know we're going to see them again. I mean, this life is pretty long given our perspective now but with the perspective of you're going to be living for eternity this life is a very short and momentary thing mm-hmm. and a brief separation for you know part of that time it's in the grand scheme of things it's not that long mm-hmm. it's kind of like if you moved it's kind of like when you moved away from your friends and family to live in Florida for a couple of years and you said I'll be back in a couple years. I'll be back in the Northeast. I'll be here to visit you. It's sort of like, you don't, you don't, you're not going to be like, Oh my goodness, this person has moved away forever. He's never coming back. Mm -hmm. It's okay. See you later. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and and that's, uh, I, I wonder, was that, um, what was the, was, cause as, as the grandson, um, your grief is going to be very different from your parents who, mm-hmm. who like knew them as their parents and like have yeah. probably seen the whole spectrum of their health decline. Was it different for them? Um, it may have been a little bit more intense just because they were closer to it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think the path, the pathway and how it all played out was very similar how it was for me as it was for my, my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, they, like I said, they're also Christians. They understand at least mentally that this is what happened. Now, in terms of emotions and feelings, there's a lot of grief to be had mm-hmm. because, you know, my from my parents' perspective, my mom has finally passed away, and this is the person that raised me and that I've known for my entire life. Mm-hmm. And for that side of the family, it's like there's that generation has now passed. There are no grandparents left. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the grief is more intense. And since I'm not in that position, I can't really judge the inner workings of thoughts and everything about it. But I think the end result was still the same of they, they would understand that this is a brief and momentary thing that Mm -hmm. we're separated from that person. And the, the excitement of this person is now, in the presence of God and is no longer in this broken sin filled world that they're finally, they're finally home. Mm-hmm. 
It's like you've made it through. You've made it through all the rough parts, and now <laughs> it's now it's clear sailing from here. Mm-hmm. And so let's start talking about that after. Uh, how do you finish that prompt when I or after I die? I want. Um, I think I'd say I don't. It's more of what I don't want, and it's it's kind of like I don't want people to feel bad for me or to miss me, because like I said before, I'm I'm home. Mm-hmm. This world isn't my home. This is this is a broken place. This is a place that is filled with sin. We all have this problem that we call sin. And, you know, it's, I'm finally in a place that I'm free of that. I mean, as, as human beings, we are, we were made to be perfect. It was our original sin that brought us to a place that has contaminated this world with sin to be forgiven of that sin and to no longer be on this earth. That is to be free of it. And, you know, it's, I mean, I want, I want people that are here to grieve for me, do whatever they need to do to emotionally process, but you know, don't, don't feel bad for me because I'm done. I'm, (laughs) I'm in a better place. (laughs) I'm happy about it. Uh, are you, um, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Um, are you, is that sort of irrelevant for you because of your faith? Hmm. That's an, that's an interesting perspective. Um, I don't know. It kind of depends on the day. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic that, that people will come to know Jesus as their savior. Um, because the other, the other thing that's sort of happening in the background here, if we're looking at the sort of like whole world history perspective of God's plan for redemption is the fact that we're, we're still here and God has not returned means that there are still some out there who do not yet know him, but God knows this person will come to me seeking forgiveness. I mean, that's... And that's something that we can look at in scripture of what's, what's the next step? What are we looking for? Mm-hmm. And there will come a time that God will say, time's up. The world stops existing and we, every single person that has ever lived will be judged in one way or another. You will either be punished for your sins or you'll be, if you're thinking of court, kind of like a courtroom setting, you will either be found guilty mm-hmm. and serve out that punishment which is separation from God, or you'll be acquitted, saying that you're guilty, but somebody else has paid the price, namely Jesus, when he died on the cross. You are now spending the rest of eternity in the presence of God, free from your sin. The punishment's been paid. So it's kind of like, on that, on that scheme of things, I'm, I'm optimistic because it means that if I died and that hasn't happened yet, then there's still more people that are going to be forgiven. Mm-hmm. Um, in other ways, I'm a little bit pessimistic though, because I mean, we can see all the injustices and all the sinful things that are still happening in the world. There's still a lot of hatred. There's lying. There's deception, stealing. There's dishonoring God for who he is as a holy person, rejecting who he is and what he's done for us. And in some ways that grieves me. But, you know, if there's still somebody else out there who doesn't know, doesn't know what God has done and 
will believe in it someday, then that's a reason to be optimistic. And so we've been talking for what, like an hour and a half, something like that. Yeah, probably about like that. 80 minutes. And, uh, we've covered a lot of ground, man. We've, uh, you've, you, I, I'm, uh, very, I've, I'm very impressed by your um, understanding of the Christian faith. It is, uh, it is um, well, uh, well reasoned, and I can tell that you've thought a lot about it. Yeah, and uh, it's not like you've come to this conclusion without reason or without uh, without and actually processing and logic. We've only even scratched the surface of sort of the rationale behind that, because kind of like as I described before, like I've used a lot of biblical examples here, but if you don't hold to the view that the Bible is true, then a lot of that is a moot point. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's an entire other discussion of what is the logical, what is the rational reason that I believe that this is true? And why not, why not what the Muslim faith says or Buddhism or being an agnostic or an atheist, mm-hmm. sort of a natural humanistic side of things. Like why do, why are none of these other world systems something that I can't wrap my brain around like why is why are not any of these other world views more rational more in line with the observations i've made than what the christian faith is mm-hmm. so that's that could just be an entire other discussion and <laughs> probably not quite as relevant as what i want before at the present and after i die but tangentially related Mm-hmm. I'll talk for another day, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm currently working out in my brain of how would I do uh, update episodes, like uh, like uh, maybe five or ten years down the line. Like, hmm. uh, what would that look like? Because I've been doing it for about two years now. So, yeah. so we'll see. We we got time. Lot, we'll let it soak. Yeah. Um, and I want to give you the last uh, few minutes, the last few moments, to address the audience directly. Um, for whoever that audience is, whether it's uh, one person who is challenged in their faith and they uh, find resolve in what you say, or somebody who is uh, uh, profoundly moved by your, um, your, your discussion of faith, um, or just somebody who's like, oh, this guy's pretty cool. Let me listen to this. Yeah. You know, uh, I'll give you, the floor is yours. All right. Well, I hope my ramblings made sense to somebody. <laughs> um, sometimes I felt like I was a little bit scatterbrained in trying to piece together things that made sense in my mind, but as the words came out, they weren't, maybe didn't make quite as much sense, but hopefully this made sense to somebody. Um, if I could give one piece of advice from my humble opinion, just one screwed up sinner to another, um, it's to seek the truth. I mean, going back to another Bible verse, this is in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, you know, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Um, God, God definitely. If if God exists, then He will see that you are seeking the truth, and will will present that truth to you if you're seeking it. So, you know, if if you're the kind of person that you say like, I. I want to know what what are we doing here? What is the purpose for my existence? Um, even if you think you've explored Christianity and don't really think that's the answer, maybe just go to Scripture and see what does Jesus actually say. Start in one of the Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and read through it. See what Jesus was teaching. See if it makes sense to you. Um, there's a number of other really good authors out there like 
Tim Keller and John Piper, who, of course, their works are not scripture. Nothing would be as, you know, um, truthful and correct as what scripture would say. They're going to be wrong in some cases, but I think a lot of the wisdom that they have is really spot on as far as what what does the Bible say? Why why should I take the time to explore this as true? And what does it mean for what what does it mean for me personally what this guy a couple thousand years ago said? Why should it make any difference? So, yeah, if if you're exploring, seek the truth. And a, a worldview that does not a worldview that has to hide from some aspect of argument is not something worth pursuing. So if you're if you're meeting people that are saying like, oh don't don't even ask those questions, don't think of it in this way, then you know, it it may be that they don't have a great explanation for something. And there'll be moments in that in Christianity I'll say, like, look, I don't have a great answer for you, but you know, I'm struggling with the same the same kinds of questions, but I'm going to keep seeking. I'm going to see if I can make sense of it myself. And you know, hopefully, if if all of if if after looking into all of that, you think that Christianity is something that that correctly describes the way things really are, then you know, talk to somebody about it. Put your faith in that and figure out what those ramifications are for you as an individual. Because you never know where you'll end up. Yep. So, uh, Scott, uh, thank you so much for this lovely conversation on 